Welcome to The Big Picture, a show that takes a deep dive into the political landscape of not only America, but right here in our own backyard of Illinois. It's showtime, folks. The Big Picture is on WCPT 820. And now, here's your host, Edwin Eisentrath. Hello, everybody. Happy Saturday. I don't know how many of you stayed awake to watch that baseball game last night. I'm rooting for the Phillies. I thought it was a great game, and and not that it matters, but I think uh, a less grumpy Pennsylvania is is a lot less likely to elect MAGA candidates. So let's hope the Phillies just keep it going. Um, Look, today is going to be really a good show. It's one you're not going to want to miss. A.B. Stoddard, the great columnist, is back. I'll also talk with Cameron Stevenson, a journalist from Arizona, about the election there. As you probably know, Arizona is where the right-wing vigilantes are, uh, you know, camped out, intimidating voters, trying to use a drop box. And and we're going to spend a lot of time today on dark money. Claire Atkin from Check My Ads is back to update us on efforts to stop companies from funding, you know, Fox Cable's lies. But we kick off the discussion with a United States senator who's done more than anyone to shed light on dark money, to uncover the connections behind the effort to corrupt the Supreme Court and um, the guy who's leading the effort to rebuild, you know, institutions that protect our democracy. That's uh, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse. Look, for nearly all of my life, and it's it's no longer a short one. Um, America had strong institutions that protected our democracy f- from everything from domestic demagogues to foreign propagandists. The, the independence of our judiciary, something the founders thought a great deal about, meant that the application of law couldn't be wielded as a partisan tool. The Supreme Court for most of my life, read the Constitution as a document written to guarantee freedoms for ordinary people. And American political parties and candidates for office, they were forbidden from taking unlimited amounts of money from any source, and all the contributions had to be disclosed. Our democracy was robust, though it operated in a narrow margin. The right and the left differed I want to say profoundly on strategies that would move the country forward, but they broadly agreed on what they meant by forward. And and we were all committed to to the, having this fight within a democratic system. But times have changed, and a powerful group of Americans has notions that constitute a break from all of that history. They They fundamentally distrust democracy, and they no longer see it as the way of achieving the future we should have. Now, I hope it's not too late, Um, uh, but I think now we see this sort of breathtaking grand strategy they've used for a long time to subvert our democracy. This group is wealthy and corporatist. They aren't the MAGA horde who this group has duped. That's not who's behind our troubles. Um, and, And consider this. They had a huge advantage in money. So the first question any strategist asks is, how do you build on the advantages that you have? When you have one, how do you make it more powerful? And when the advantage is money, the answer is to increase the influence of money in politics. If that can be accomplished, then those with money to spend gain power relative to those without it. 
Well, how do you accomplish that? Because the country had campaign finance laws. We had laws that required disclosure of political expenses. Congress, in bipartisan manner, they passed uh, campaign finance laws. They passed um, uh, disclosure laws. In order to change that, you would have to get the Supreme Court to nullify those laws, laws that have, by the way, very broad popular support among Americans. So you have to capture the court. And and you can't tell ordinary people in the democracy that you want to capture the Supreme Court. You want to appoint judges who will work for moneyed interests over ordinary people. So you have to hide your intent and find a cause to galvanize support for a revolution on the court. Here I'm thinking of, of you know, those wonderful young students who went out in Iran to protest at the end of the Shah's regime, thinking they would get something like a liberal democracy. But they got duped, right? And they ended up living for the rest of their lives in uh, that Ayatollah-led, you know, uh, religious dictatorship, right? So here we have people being duped by these rich guys, um, and the cause they used was abortion. If you could spend enough money to outrage and frighten people on that issue, they might become single-issue voters and provide the edge needed um, so that over time, the Supreme Court could be captured. And that's exactly what happened. And once they had their majority, even if it was a bare one, the court immediately undermined campaign finance laws. That was Citizens United. And then the dark money started to flow like cancer into our politics. First goal achieved. Money is now more powerful. Um, uh, What do they do? Now they've got the money, but they still have the problem of voters because Americans aren't going to give up voting. So you have to use the advantage they've now gained to make voting less effective. But to do that, you need the court, plus you need state legislatures. And right on cue, those untold billions in dark money went to work in campaigns to gain control of state legislators. To do this, of course, they needed a committed core of voters who would be too angry to see how they were being used. So billions of dollars went into campaigns that lied and demonized. And according to the Washington Post just this morning, just this morning, this cycle, Republicans have spent 40 million in ads demonizing Nancy Pelosi. So that hideous political assassination attempt that caused her husband to be bludgeoned by a hammer wielding intruder. This is a sad sign of our dangerous times. They spent more in lies about Hillary Clinton They build a whole media ecosystem to push their crazy conspiracies that fire up a base about things that are completely silly, totally false, and absolutely unrelated to the issues of governance. After the 2010 elections, when the GOP controlled the state houses, they used the decennial map to lock in their victories into gerrymandered districts. Now with control of state houses in the Supreme Court, they took that next step. And in a series of rulings, the court gutted the Voting Rights Act. They gutted uh, enforcement of the Voting Rights Act. And then they forbade federal courts from having anything to do with gerrymandering cases. Now we have a corrupt court, weakened rules protecting voters, and state legislatures ready to curtail voting rights to maintain power. Um, and, and remember, we've talked about Ohio. The, the Ohio Supreme Court says that the districts they're using to elect congressmen, 15 of them, are unconstitutional, illegal districts. They're doing it anyway. 
They shouldn't seat anyone who wins there, though in Ohio, they're trying to end run and replace the court to retroactively okay those districts. But now comes the final blow, right? Um, because if they can, if, if they can use their money and power to make Americans doubt the integrity of elections themselves, then they might get the chance to capture government through other means. Look, this was a decades-long effort funded by wealthy Americans, many of whose names you've never heard. It's led by a staffer, a man named Leonard Leo, who oversees the day-to-day use of dark money in right-wing politics. But then came Donald Trump. And look, many people contributed to tilting the balance uh, towards money and away from ordinary citizens and voters, but no one could have foreseen the damage uh, and the destruction of Donald Trump because he succeeded in getting nearly 30% of Americans to doubt election results. And the plotters, boy, they knew what to do with this. They spread his lies to make room for their captured legislatures to pass new election laws that they knew would make the rest of us now worry about the validity of elections. And boy, once we all doubt the results, the moneyed power can impose leadership through their corrupt court. Now we stand at a precipice. We're fighting a last battle on ground the forces arrayed against democracy have spent years preparing. If we hold, we must not falter in rebuilding the institutions that support the democracy. We must not fear to break the outsized influence of money in politics. Um, I want to take this moment, um, Paul, to take a break now so when we get uh, Senator Whitehouse here. We can just go right into it. So we'll take a break here. And when we come back, the man who's actually done more to work on this issue than anyone else will be joining us. Stay with us. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820. Okay, we are back. And look, no one has worked harder to shed light on on the corrupting influence of money in politics that I would just described to you before the break. No one has worked smarter to uncover it, to describe it, and to push back against it uh, than the United States Senator from the great state of Rhode Island, Sheldon Whitehouse, who joins me now. Senator, welcome. Thank you, Edwin. Wonderful to be with you. Uh, You wrote a new book. I read it, The Scheme, and I, I, I read it this week. It's a perfect Halloween horror novel, except it's not a novel. It's an indictment. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I, I thank you for for writing it. I've been telling our listeners for a year we have an illegitimate Supreme Court, and I've been telling them that it, uh, that it isn't right to say that we have, you know, our two political po- po- parties, excuse me, are polarized. A better description is that one party's been radicalized. But uh, after all, you know, um, the it wasn't until I read your book that. Um, and, the, and the abrupt changes you saw after Citizens United, that those two ideas connected, that we have one party just being radicalized into the ether um, and that we have a corrupt court. And I didn't understand how they were connected until you described what happened with environmental legislation and others the moment dark money started to flow. Yeah, that was a real uh, tipping point for the country because before the um Citizens United decision came out when the most you could give was, at least legally, was probably, you know, five or $10,000. There was really no big value to hiding that. 
because lots of people were giving five or ten thousand dollars. You weren't a standout, and you only had so much insulin. Once Citizens United came down, and you could now give five million dollars, fifty million dollars. Now you had every reason in the world to hide it. And when you're giving that kind of money to spend the money that it takes to set up shell corporations or run through donors trust or otherwise hide who you are, suddenly all of that begins to make sense. And a new cottage industry developed of hiding political donor money, um, things like super PACs that didn't even exist beforehand, real monsters on the political landscape appeared, and they're all in the service of people who want to spend millions of dollars to buy influence in politics. Well, and, and that influence has has a real interesting and meaningful impact on people's lives. Tell everybody, because I was so stunned reading it, what remind them what Congress was like before the dark money started. Remind them what was happening on environmental legislation. Well, the biggest thing was uh, climate bills. I got to the Senate in January 2007. Dick Cheney swore me in with an unhappy scowl on his face because I was the, you know, W at the end of the alphabet, and I tipped us to Democratic control Mm -hmm. um, and got to work pretty quickly on climate stuff. And at the time, there were lots of bipartisan bills kicking around. Uh, Graham and Kerry had a bill. Cantwell and Collins had a bill. Um, Senator Warner, the Republican from uh, Virginia, I had a bill with Joe Lieberman, and there were constant conversations about how this should go. And that was true in 07, 08, and 09. And then in January of 2010, it was like a heart attack. It happened instantly. And from that moment forward, there was no more bipartisanship. And it happened to coincide perfectly with Citizens United and the ability of the fossil fuel industry to deploy not only massive amounts of money, because, frankly, it's sort of inefficient to spend that much money. You can ordinarily get a lot of what you want just by threatening or promising to spend money. And then you get to keep the money. It leaves no ripple in the advertising world, <clears throat> but you get what you want. So between the shadow of the spending, the threat and the promise, and the spending itself, Republicans knew that they had to pack it in and uh, become an anti-climate party in order to get fossil fuel money, which they did. And, you know, weirdly, the, there were other areas of broad agreement. There used to be broad agreement on voting rights. I mean, all of it's come crashing down. Um, and, and really, only one party has moved. Yeah, well, voting rights was kind of a trick because, as you'll recall, um, Congress renewed the Voting Rights Act um, with enormous majorities, near near unanimity yep. in the House and the Senate. So the people who wanted to fight over this knew that they weren't going to do very well in Congress, um, but they had that captured court. And so they went to court, and this guy who's just been in the newspaper recently, this guy Bloom, who um, is now involved in the anti-affirmative action case, so he went and found Shelby County, this county, in the South that he recruited as a uh, client for his big money funded litigation firms that wanted to bring the case because they thought they had a Supreme Court that could undo the Voting Rights Act. And sure enough, um, the recently passed, hugely bipartisan 
very successful Voting Rights Act was undone by these right-wing Federalist Society justices. So was bipartisan McCain-Feingold, which was about money in politics. Yeah. Yeah, you know, what? it got so bad. Uh, First of all, in a weird irony, the premise of Citizens United, the legal premise of Citizens United, is that all the unlimited money that they unleashed was going to be transparent. And of course it wasn't. There's been billions of dollars of dark money spent since. But John and I wrote a brief together to the Supreme Court very shortly after the Citizens United decision, a case called Bullock uh, that came out of Montana. And uh, we reported to the court, you know, you guys, you said this money was going to be independent. It isn't. And we gave a lot of evidence about that. And uh, we also said, you said it was going to be transparent. And it totally isn't. And that's indisputable. The dark money is self-evident. And this case, the Bullock case, gives you the chance, guys, to fix this error in your Citizens United decision, presuming that they didn't want to be wrong. And they ignored uh, John, and they ignored me, and they refused to take up the case, and they let the dark money continue to roll. Yeah, that that sure is not what a legitimate court would do. No, um, you, they knew. Uh, they knew when they yeah. were told in bipartisan fashion that they'd made an error, and there was no dispute about it. They knew that they were wrong. They'd been told, and they just turned a blind eye and let the money keep rolling. Senator, it's possible that they did not make a mistake, but they actually intended this result, even if they said it wouldn't be the result. Correct. It could have been a a sort of a decorative sham of legal analysis that um, they knew was wrong at the time and that they didn't intend to enforce at the time. I mean, you took everybody told them at the time it was wrong. And then you went back to them with a subsequent case and they walked away. Yeah. Yeah. With John McCain. Like, who knows more about campaign finance stuff than the legendary John McCain? He and I wrote this brief and and. you know, one thing to ignore the junior senator from the state of Rhode Island is nothing to ignore a bipartisan brief signed by the guy who is the sort of living legend of campaign finance. Yep. It's shocking. So, so you had a chance recently um, to force disclosure, the Disclose Act. The, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, I, I just got to read this to you. This is, this is what they said. The bill's manifest purpose is to impose exceptional burdens on the speech of corporations, the business community, and other interests disfavored by the bill's drafters. Is that the manifest purpose of the Disclose Act? (laughs) (laughs) You've got to love the uh, chamber. Uh, The chamber is actually in the business of writing briefs for members so that the members don't have to put their names on the brief and be associated with They're the glove for a lot of dirty hands. Mm -hmm. So they're a very self-interested party in doing all of this. And what they overlook is that if you go back and if you read the Constitution and if you read the Bill of Rights and if you read the Federalist Papers and if you read the constitutional debates, nowhere in any of that do you find any role that was contemplated for corporations to be involved in our politics. That is a theory that was concocted by Republican-appointed justices, beginning with Justice Powell, 
and has been developed further and further by them ever since to the point where now it is a dark money, multi-billion dollar free-for-all. We just hit a billion dollars spent on behalf of Republican Senate candidates in this election. Now, what yeah, do you think billion. wanted for that? A billion, everybody. A billion, not a million, a billion. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I think they want the end of our democracy is what I think they want. But um, Well, they certainly yeah, want to control regulations so that they don't have to be regulated. They certainly want to continue to pollute for free because that's big, big business for the oil industry. They certainly want to be able to run scams more effectively without uh, being hauled into court. And the Supreme Court um, them all that. Yeah. And, and the purpose of the Disclose Act, just so everybody knows, was just this. Tell people where the money comes from. But on the yeah. right, they said, oh, no, that will make donors targets. Right. And they and they pull up a case about the NAACP where. Um, we were protecting people a long time ago. It's a very different situation. Yeah, if you can't tell the difference between an ordinary member of the NAACP trying to avoid being harassed and perhaps even murdered in the Jim Crow South in the 1960s and before, if you can't tell the difference between that and a secretive right-wing billionaire trying to manipulate American democracy through a bunch of phony front groups that they've stood up, you really have no sense of uh, political reality and no sense of proportion. And yet that's the uh, device that the Supreme Court has used to begin, shouldn't say the Supreme Court, the Republican appointees have used to begin to set up a constitutional right to dock money. Yeah. You're, you're, colleague, the absolutely horrid senator from Wisconsin, Ron Johnson, um, is campaigning to fire all the newly hired IRS agents. And I thought that was a way to protect wealthy donors, since, after all, those of us whose taxes come from payroll deductions, this is not an audit issue, right? It's the complicated guys with lots of money. But I had an aha moment reading your chapter on super PACs, 501Cs, and corporate shareholders. Do you think he's smart enough and the, and the schemers you talked about are actually concerned that the IRS agents are going to hold some of these, these fake uh, 501C4s accountable and say, look, you're here just to do politics. You don't get to have this ben- tax benefit. Uh, absolutely. Um, the history of this is that immediately after Citizens United, if you wanted to figure out how to get involved in politics, the best way to do it was through a group organized under a part of the Internal Revenue Code called Section 501C4, which groups were allowed to do two wonderful things from their perspective. One, they could spend money directly in politics, up to 50% of their revenue. And two, they did not have to disclose their donors. So in effect, big sneaky donors could pay a 50% tax to be anonymous. And when money's no object, that's no big deal. Plus, it didn't take long to figure out that if you set up a handful of these little groups, they just passed the money along to each other. And 50 became 75, became, you know, 92, became 99. You know, pretty soon all the money's going into ads as you launder it through your little pool of these groups. So they really didn't want the IRS looking at this. When the IRS did, they exploded. They threatened to impeach 
the IRS commissioner. They threatened the person who ran this. They referred her to the Department of Justice to be prosecuted as a criminal. Um, and they kept the pressure on so that from then on, the IRS has treated the uh, um, pass-through of political money anonymously as kryptonite, something they don't dare touch because they know it'll set off a huge reaction. And sadly, Democrats have been pretty gutless about having the IRS's back and explaining to the public what's really going on here. Yeah, I mean, I, I lost you a little. It was hard to hear a little bit of your answer. I don't know what happened, but the, we lost the signal just a little bit during that. But the truth is the IRS, these new IRS agents are not targeting ordinary Americans, right? Notwithstanding what Ron Johnson says, they're actually looking to enforce the laws on corrupt money. Correct. Yeah, where ordinary Americans intersect with the IRS is usually through tax refunds. So you want more IRS agents to be able to get your refund back to you correctly because you paid your taxes with your payroll. It's people right. you want the refund funds. It's people who are uh, owners of, of businesses um, who figured out tax scams to run their money through foreign countries. Those are the people that need the attention and fear the attention. Uh, uh, I want to ask you while while we're on this topic, do you have you know a good chunk of the signal and the, and the listeners to our show are in Wisconsin, even though I'm I'm in Chicago. Do you have anything you want to say to the people of Wisconsin about their good Senator Ron Johnson, who is tied at the moment? I would say this. Um, If you think that candidates for the Senate who are being washed into office on a tide of a billion dollars in dark money are going to listen to you at the end of the day, and not to whoever was behind that billion-dollar tide of dark money, you're being played for a sucker. So we've got to learn to look behind the smeary ads and all of the efforts to you know, hyper-politicize and uh, divide the country and figure out who is pulling the strings. And if you're being asked to vote for Ron Johnson, you're being asked to vote for Ron Johnson by a group that has spent a billion dollars to put Republicans in charge of the Senate. And that, you ought to, unless you're one of the people behind that, then you're being played. You're not going to be at the table. They're not going to be looking out for you. And you need to wake up and understand that you're being played for a chump by these big uh, wheeler dealers. Thank you for that. I couldn't agree more. Hey, um, we need to take a a quick break. And when, when we come back, I want to talk to you about the Powell memo, because I think people really yeah. need to understand what got set off. I'm talking to uh, United States Senator Sheldon Whitehouse. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendraft on WCPT 820. Okay, we are back, and I'm talking with Senator Whitehouse from the great state of Rhode Island. Um, and... On top of being a, a pretty terrific senator, he, he has an ability to teach. And I want him to take a minute and have him talk to you about the Powell Memo and its place in our history. It's really interesting, dangerous, and very important, and it hasn't gotten the attention it deserves. 
So the background is that corporate America was very spooked uh, back in the 60s by all of the uh, people, um, by the youth movement, by litigation against their unsafe products, by the uh, environmental movement. And the U.S. Chamber of Commerce commissioned a report on how to push back and regain corporate political power. And the person they got to write the memo for them was a Richmond lawyer named Lewis Powell. And uh, he wrote the memo and turned it in to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. And about four months later was sworn in as a Supreme Court justice. Uh, and, of course, the report was never shown to the Senate during his confirmation, because that would have been, I think, a, pro- a problem for him. It was kept secret. Mm-hmm. Um, so then he gets on the court. And in cases like Bilotti versus Massachusetts and Buckley versus Vallejo, he starts to create political rights for corporations in the American political system. And little by little, they grow and they grow and they grow. And it's the early seed from which ultimately uh, cases like um, Citizens United uh, finally emerge. He laid the foundation for corporations having a role in American elections, which shortly became uh, a commanding role in uh, American elections, and now, sadly, an anonymous commanding role. Mm-hmm. I've read the memo, and just as a matter of strategy, when you think about the moment he wrote it, it's actually brilliant. It's evil, but it's brilliant. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, And it created these openings for, as you say, for all the dark money that's now in our political system. Yeah, two things really resonated with me. One, uh, one of the sections of it said, we've got to control the courts because the Mm -hmm. courts that social and economic policy. So they targeted the courts. And that was kind of a a novelty. And of course, now look where we are. And the second was we need to have intermediary organizations. Because um, when corporations try to do, uh, my language, not his, bad things, when corporations try to assert themselves, there can be a lot of blowback from their shareholders and from customers and from the public. So it's going to be necessary that there can be intermediary organizations so that corporations don't have to be accountable for what they're trying to do politically. And those two thoughts have really manifested themselves uh, today in the capture of the court, in the flood of dark money through front groups into our politics. And of course, those combine in the book, as I described in the scheme, and that it was the big floods of dark money that got the court captured. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want to, this is a very uh, dangerous time and we are walking a narrow, narrow line. And I want to talk to you about this because I haven't found an adequate way to describe what billions of dark money have done to our democracy. We still tell people to vote. We tell them to vote as if it's all still legit. Um, But in fact, we're fighting uphill. And yet it's more important to vote maybe than it has been that I can ever remember. So how do we describe the, the moment? where things have been corrupted, the court has been captured. In Ohio, for gosh sakes, they're going to vote in districts that the Ohio Supreme Court says is illegal. And, um, and yet they're 15 
members of Congress are going to be elected out of those districts. I hope Congress doesn't seat them until they have a real election and fair districts. But there's no power in the state to do this. And yet we're still a democracy and one where voters are still sovereign. How do we describe to people that, yes, it's corrupt, but it really does matter what decisions you make? I think the short answer is that um, disclosure of campaign spending will cure a lot of problems. Mm -hmm. First of all, as a citizen, you'll know what's going on around you. You aren't the target of a scam. It's because there's an organization called, you know, uh, Ohioans for Peace and Puppies and Prosperity. But it's Senator, I'm losing you again. I'm losing you again. There's, Just, let me go there. to a different location so you can help. There, that's um, perfect. Yeah, I mean, if it's, a real, if it's a real company and they put their name behind something, you're in a very different world than if you're having some bile belched out of your television at you by, you know, Ohioans for Peace and Puppies and Prosperity or some completely phony yeah. fund group that you know isn't real. That's tough as a citizen. Second, the bile is foul because nobody's accountable for it. You throw away the front group the way you throw away toilet paper once you're done with it. So the, mm -hmm. nobody real is accountable for what's being said. And third, it's become a complete free-for-all. And I think if people were responsible for their uh, speech in a political debate, uh, a lot of people would behave a lot better and uh, there'd be a lot less dark money that showed up. Because, I mean, imagine if um, at the end of the day they had to run or Exxon Mobil and we approved this message at the end of their ad. You know, that would Ohio, be different. Probably lose. <laughs> that would be different. That against me all day long. In fact, I might play it back myself just to say, yep. just so you know, guys, look who's trying to knock me out. Um, yep. So, you know. It, there's a pathway, and I do think that once the grip of dark money on Congress in particular is loosened and Congress starts responding to people's concerns about pharmaceutical prices, about being gouged by the oil companies, about making sure that Social Security and Medicare get better, not worse, about, you know, having roads and bridges and, and infrastructure at a, at a first world level. You know, when we're responding to people, then the temperature in the country will come down. People know that they're not being listened to, and that is behind a lot of the anger. And then you've got the propaganda machine like Fox News and the others churning mm -hmm. people's anger into very specific, you know, resentments and um, making people even angrier. And I think we need to dial down a lot of that pressure and starting to tell the truth about who's saying what is a very good way to dial down the pressure and have us all be citizens again. Yeah, and the, the 117th Congress, this Congress, you guys have done really amazing things. I mean, in spite of these divisions, in spite of the noise, in spite of the um, uh, bitterness, uh, really important legislation has been passed that is going to make America better, and some of it even passed with bipartisan support. Yep. And, you know, some so, of it's, I, we, we expect it's going to make America better, but it's not going to make America better right now. It's going to roll out over, you know, months and years. 
And over those months and years of the legislation rolling out, there's the propaganda machine still saying horrible things, still spouting their venom. And um, it's hard to overcome that just by passing good legislation. The way you overcome that is by inviting the American public to look behind it, to see who's spouting that at them, to think about what their motives might be, to get the yep. American public in on the scam that they're the right now being played as suckers by. Yeah, and and the the fiddle player for a lot of that, at least the concert master, the guys that was hired to manage all that dark money, this Leonard Leo. Um, he was, yeah. I mean, he got an extra $1.6 billion to play with this year from, a, you know, unfortunately, a guy from my state of Illinois. Yeah, he, he uh, orchestrated um, a lot of the front groups in the dark money apparatus that were targeted at capturing the court. He didn't yep. play very hard in climate denial and some of the other aspects, but he was the uh, lead uh, orchestrator uh, and coordinator of the big dark money donors in the long effort to capture the court. Indeed, he really made his bones with them when he helped them stop Harriet Myers, who was the White House counsel and personal friend of President Bush. And he humiliatingly had to withdraw her because the far right got so cranked up um, that they wanted somebody different, namely Sam Alito. That's how Alito got under the court. He was a Leonard Leo uh, right wing product from the very first moment. Yep. Um, let's talk a little bit more about the court. Um, recently, we learned that the FBI investigation into now Justice Kavanaugh when he was a nominee was a sham. Um, and they have They've said so. Uh, is there anything new on that? Are they actually going to finish the investigation they pretended to have? Nope, because he's on the court now and they have no reason to. But um, I'm going to continue the investigation of what on earth went wrong. At the moment, um, we've gotten the FBI to admit that the tip line uh, clues were never investigated but were handed over uninvestigated to the Trump White House to do nothing with, and that the agents that went out to ask questions were directed by the White House, not by the FBI, and weren't following any known FBI procedure. So the whole thing was a political um, farce created to look like an FBI investigation without actually being one. What we don't have yet is the communications between the White House and the FBI as that farce investigation was directed by the White House. And I think it's important that we know that, um, not only to look back and realize something terrible happened in that investigation, but to look forward because the Senate relies on the legitimacy of FBI investigations as we confirm not just Supreme Court justices, but hundreds and hundreds of people. And if there's a situation in which we can't trust the FBI background investigation of uh, a presidential appointee as being legit, that it can be basically run as a political operation by White House counsel instead of actually honestly by the FBI agent, then we've got a larger problem and we need to solve that too. 
we have a larger problem, and I wish you a lot of luck getting that communication. It's probably in a box in Mar-a-Lago still somewhere if he hasn't flushed it down the toilet. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of luck. Actually, I would think that the FBI and the Department of Justice still have access to all those things. But um, unfortunately, the Biden administration has not been very helpful in getting those uh, records to us. Yeah, I, I don't want to keep having the same old fight. It's, it's a tough balance trying to move the country forward and talking about Donald Trump all the time because of the damage he did. But I hope you get it and I hope you uh, can help fix it because we can't have a politicized FBI, too. Now. Hey, um, you you filed a brief recently in another case that the Supreme Court is considering, a case that no legitimate court would ever have agreed to hear. Ever. And this is um, intended to mainstream the so-called independent state legislature doctrine. Can you talk about that? Yes. Um, At the heart of the effort to uh, reverse the actual election results and install President Trump was a legal theory that states that went for Biden but were controlled by Republican legislatures could set their own terms for who won the election, send in their own electors, and so forth. So this has a uh, really poisonous association with it in the legal side of the insurrection effort. And a lot of the same players who were involved in these attempts, which failed and failed and failed in the courts below to get the election overturned using these schemes, have now turned up in the Supreme Court to ask the court to give its blessing to this theory that uh, state legislatures can turn over federal election results. So uh, Hank Johnson, who's my coordinate in the House, he runs the House Judiciary Courts Subcommittee, uh, and I filed a brief pointing out that history here and who some of these characters were who had showed up in the Supreme Court to um, offer their views and opinions to the court, but without bothering to disclose their role in the insurrection effort, their linkages with each other, and in some cases, their relationships with um, justices on the court. It's a huge Say more about those relationships. Problem. Well, um, there's a group that showed up with a brief that calls itself the Honest Elections Project. That's not even the group's real name. That's its so-called fictitious name under Virginia law for another group, um, which is part of a 501c3, 501c4 political sort of twin uh, operation, same location, same staff, same funders, so forth. Also operating out of that base under a different fictitious name, but same group, just a different fictitious name, was something called the Judicial Crisis Network, which spent, hard to tell, but easily $40 million blocking Garland and getting uh, Gorsuch and then Kavanaugh and then Barrett onto the court with big. Mm. TV campaigns that were run with anonymous money, big checks, $15 million checks, $17 million checks. And 
um, that creates issues of due process and ethics. If you've spent millions and millions of dollars to get a judge on a court and then you appear before that judge, um, there's a case called Caperton out of West Virginia that was based on the due process rights of not being, uh, having your case heard by a judge who had been heavily funded by your opponent. And in this case, you don't even have to get that far. It's just a question of people should at least know, right? You can't even ask the questions. The court can't even make the appropriate judgments about recusal and ethics and due process if all of that is secret. So, in effect, uh, the same entity under a different fictitious name was briefing the court that had spent these tens of millions of dollars to get the judges who were briefed uh, get them out of the court. Senator, so this is you know, appalling. It's just appalling. It's just, it's just gross. Yeah. And, and the, the, the Supreme Court has no ethics rules. They're the only court that doesn't. If they won't adopt them themselves, can Congress mandate an ethics code for them? Yes, and we have a bill that would do just that. Um, and it's, if we pass the law, the first thing they'd have is 180 days to put their own proper ethics code and some means of evaluating and enforcing the judge's conduct uh, into effect. Because, um, you know, frankly, if they would be as firm with themselves from an ethics point of view as the ethics codes are for the lower courts, that they'd be great. Or even, yeah, it'd be great. And, be great. you know, at the moment, we in Congress, executive <laughs> officials, and uh, judges who are not Supreme Court judges all operate <laughs> under far more rigorous ethics codes and supervision than our Supreme Court justices do, and that's wrong. They get to decide yeah. their own ethics. And and far more disclosure. Far more. You guys have far more disclosure. I mean, the Supreme Court guys, I, I think about, um, you know, the trips they take and who funds them and where they go yeah. to speak, and none of that is, is, um, is public. Should I tell the story about the Scalia trips? Yes, please. I mean, you know, I, I only learned about I'll it when he died on one. Yeah, he died on a hunting trip, and he took a famous hunting trip on Air Force Two with Cheney while uh, the Bush-Cheney administration had cases before the court. So those are the two things that we knew about um, the hunting trips. But as we were digging into what's going wrong at the court, we ran into reporting that showed that actually Scalia had taken up to 80 Eight zero eighty hunting trips that were almost certainly, without exception, uh, or with extremely rare exception, not paid for. I.e., it was a freebie for him. And despite the fact that this was a gift of very expensive hospitality, uh, it was not reported. None of them were. He was like zero for eighty in reporting them. Yep. And, the, and Senator, the let's, let's just was, make sure everybody, let me again, I, oh, hang on one second. We have a signal that reaches a lot of hunters. So I need, I need them yeah. to understand these hunting trips were not taking a gun and going to the woods where the deers are. They were going to very Correct. expensive and exclusive hunting lodges that most people yeah. would never get anywhere near. Correct. And, and would have trouble affording, uh, a great many of them were business organi organizations, 
uh, that charged fees or even to the to members or to the general public. Um, and the way that they would set it up is that somebody would approach the owner of the resort and say, hey, we need you to invite Justice Scalia. And the owner would then invite Justice Scalia, and that was considered a personal invitation. And therefore, the hospitality that was provided was considered personal hospitality, which then didn't have to be reported. Well, of course, mm-hmm. there was no personal relationship there at all. They hadn't even met. And personal hospitality that's exempt from reporting means when you spend Hanukkah with your son-in-law. It means when you, uh, you know, go to visit your sister and she puts you up for a week where she lives in California. It's, you know, that, that's per- personal hospitality. When you go to hang out with your college roommate, you know, um, the idea that a person you've never met can offer you free uh, resort uh, hospitality um, surrounded by people with political interests before the court, by the way. This was not just, you know, Scalia going hunting. This was Scalia at a party of interested people with big issues before the court, fossil fuel folks, uh, yeah. gun rights folks. And then off you go and you get quiet time with the justice and you have this, you know, great free uh, fancy resort vacation together and nobody ever even reports it. So we have a corrupt system around the court. We have no um, le- le- really uh, enforceable ethics rules at all. Very little disclosure. And now we have a partisan captured court. It's um, it's a nightmare that uh, in the Federalist Papers they warned us about would be in a great threat to our freedom. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And well, no one has done more to don't see this. It's stunning. Yeah. Or, well, the, or they worse, they, they do see it in order not to see it. Or persisting through it. Yeah. 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 But, but, like, like no one has done more than you to identify it, to explain it to the public and to push back against it. I, I, your, your, your book is the scheme. I wish uh, everybody would read it, particularly, you know, between now and Halloween, because nothing will scare you more. Um, and it's really important. And, you know, as I say, it's a it's an indictment. You're asking us to be the jurors, I guess, um, yeah. or just to act like the sovereigns. The Constitution tells us we're supposed to be and do something about it. Yep. And understand this is not a conservative court. It is a captured court and it was captured by operations that we'd be very familiar with. Um, in the intelligence community, they were just run against us and in our own country uh, by powerful special interests. Yeah, I was a, that, that was a really interesting part of your book. We didn't get the time to, but this whole, you know, uh, secret ops campaign and how it resembles what we do around the world, um, also very frightening. Very frightening. Listen, I, I'm very appreciative of your time spending some Saturday with us. Um, I should ask, since neither of them is in your state, do you have a favorite in the World Series? Uh, You know, the Phillies yesterday had one of the great days in sports history, coming back from 5 nothing. Yep. And having the team just rally, and my uh, daughter and my son live in Philadelphia, so I definitely got to go with the Phillies on that one. 
Yeah, I agree with you. And I actually think Pennsylvania will reject its MAGA candidates if it's not so grumpy. So I'm all for the Phillies. Exactly. Exactly. It's just too bad they're not beating a team from New Jersey. Right. Yeah. Uh, Thank you so much. Really appreciate your time um, and and your good work on this. Yep. All right, everybody. That was uh, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse from the wonderful state of Rhode Island. We're going to take a break from the news and we're going to turn to a little bit more about dark money. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendraft on WCPT 820. Okay, thank you for staying with me today. Boy, that was interesting, wasn't it? I mean, this dark money problem, the corruption that goes with it, the lack of disclosure, the lack of ethics rules in the Supreme Court, the capturing of the court, all of it is um, appalling and reason for you to get out and do your duty and vote um, if you haven't already. All right. I am now joined by Claire Atkin, who is the co-founder of the Check My Ads Institute. Check My Ads is um, it's an effort to solve an enormous and complicated problem, which is the placement of, of digital misinformation uh, on unsuspecting websites. And it's corollary, the placement of legitimate ads on sites that don't deserve the support of major brands. Of course, duh, I'm thinking about Fox.com. Claire, welcome back. Hi, it's so good to be here. Thanks for having me. I think we talked in in June um, last when you were just getting getting started. Would you explain once again for people how the marketplace for digital ads works and how you're trying to change it? Yes, happily. So thank you for having me. My name is Claire Atkin. I'm the co-founder of Check My Ads, checkmyads.org. And what we do is we look into the ad tech system. Now, don't turn off your radios. One of the more frustrating parts of that incredible interview that we just heard with Senator, uh, I'm sorry, who was it? Sheldon Whitehouse, Senator. White House. It was White House, yes. Um, Was that all we can do after listening to all of that incredible information is vote. But uh, what I'm going to say today is tell you a little bit of a story and how dark money works on the Internet and then actually give you something to do, some action that you can take that actually will make a difference that is already making a difference. So uh, the ad tech industry is the industry that upholds the internet. It's all those digital ads that you can see when you go to a website, you know, they flash at you, they follow you around the internet. They're very annoying. No one likes them. And they're incredibly important for websites. They actually fund a website. And this industry is somewhere between 400 billion and 700 billion dollars. Nobody knows if it's 400 billion or if it's 700 billion which is wild. I mean, it just goes to show how difficult it is to track. And also, it's the source of one of the biggest promoters of disinformation. Disinformation makes money off of this industry. So that's what I'm here to talk about today. Good. So so just as an example, you're a company and you want your ad to show up on the internet, you don't actually go out and say and, and look for people who have websites and say, "Hey, I want to put my ad on your site," or "I want my ad to run," 
you know, uh, on in this newspaper in the sports section. That's not really how it works. It's automated, right? Through through these That's exchanges. Right. Yeah. Advertisers want to reach you. They want you to buy their products and they want to remind you that their products exist and they want to build trust with you over time. And one of the major ways that they can build trust with you over time is by sending you ads so that you become increasingly comfortable with their logo and with their brand message. And so they want to reach you and they know that you use the Internet, that you read the news, that you go to sports websites, that you might go to forums. They want to meet you at that place, but they don't put ads on the internet themselves. They have ad agencies that buy with ad exchanges on their behalf. And these ad exchanges make big promises to advertisers. Advertisers, again, we're talking hundreds of billions of dollars. And so what they say to advertisers is we only work with premium websites or what they call publishers. We only work with publishers that have big reach. We can track and follow anyone on the internet to make sure that we have the right audience for you at the right time that they want to buy. Oh, and by the way, we will keep your brand safe. And this thing called brand safety is a promise that says to advertisers, we will never work with publishers that publish election disinformation. We will never work with publishers that publish COVID-19 disinformation. And these advertisers trust these ad exchange companies because they have to. And then say, okay, here's, you know, $90 million for this one campaign. And they have a really hard time checking their ads. That's what we're talking about here. And that's why we need a public watchdog organization to really look into what is going on. And we're inviting everyone to look into what is going on. So, Claire, before you get that, it bears repeating one more time a little bit differently. I think you were very clear, um, but we should say it a few times because it's a complicated topic for people. Mm -hmm. So you're a company, you're a decent company, and you put your ad out. You don't want it to appear on a porn site. You don't want it to appear on um, uh, some crazy uh, QAnon site. You want it to go somewhere Mm -hmm. where – your 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 company's brand equity, your company's reputation isn't tarnished, right? And that's the promise. That's right. Now, let's flip it on its head. So let's pretend that you are a propaganda outfit and you want to deceive Americans. You yep. could be domestic. You could be foreign. You're a propaganda outfit. You need three things to really thrive. The number one thing you need is legitimacy. The second thing you need is is money, and you don't need very much. It's not as if you're spending money on fact checkers and copy editors. And the third thing you need is data, the ability to better and better target people who are susceptible to lies and disinformation. The ad tech system is a weapon in the arsenal of propaganda. It provides everything they need. The ads themselves give legitimacy. We were just talking about how publishers help boost brands, but brands actually also help boost publishers. And when you're a disinformation publisher, you want those blue chip advertisers who have already put in decades of work into helping people trust their brand. So if you're there as an advertiser, you're actually giving your brand equity over to those lies over to that disinformation. 
They also, of course, give money because ads get you revenue. And the ad tech system plugs you into data. And that allows you to better and better target your target audience, people who are suckers for lies, for scapegoating, for hate, people who are susceptible to election disinformation or COVID-19 disinformation. Yep. So, so Breitbart and all their lies can use the ad tech system to learn, well, to basically channel their message out to an audience that uh, is susceptible. Breitbart is a wonderful example because Breitbart in 2016 was had more traffic, was larger than a combination of CNN.com and FoxNews.com. I mean, they were enormous. And they're very hard to remember about these days because the fact is, is that Breitbart is sort of passe. You know, Steve mm-hmm. Bannon left. Uh, all of their authors went on to start other disinformation sites like Ben Shapiro and the Daily Wire. They all had it sort of dissolved. And incidentally, Fox News has taken on their business model online at a much higher rate now. And what happened was there was a brand safety crisis in 2016, right after the election, leading into early 2017, basically a group of uh, two people called Sleeping Giants, they had a Twitter account and a Facebook account, and they would let advertisers know publicly when their ads were funding xenophobia, hate, and bigotry on Breitbart.com. One after the other, 4,000 advertisers dropped Breitbart, and 31 of their 35 ad exchanges dropped them as well. And so they were going to make $8 million in 2017. And Steve Bannon was thinking how exciting it was that he could move towards France and Germany, expand his sort of fascist empire globally. And they were stopped in their tracks. I mean, they were completely cut off at the source. And Steve Bannon himself said that without ads, there's no economic model for what he's trying to do. Now, Okay, and that is, that's exactly what you do. That's exactly what we do. And the person who started Sleeping Giants, her name is Nandini Jami. She's my business partner. And what we, what we did is we realized that advertisers don't know where their ads are going. They can't check their ads because ad exchanges don't like it when they look too deep into their campaigns. And so what we actually needed to do was we needed to be a watchdog organization for those middlemen, for those ad exchanges who are making so much money having business relationships with these disinformation outlets without advertisers knowing. So you find out and then you go and alert the exchange, but you also go to the brand that's paying for the ad and say, is this really what you want to do? That's right. So on January 5th of this year, we launched a campaign to defund the insurrectionists. We identified the top six people who were making the most money off of the big lie that led to the insurrection. And we have said again and again, advertisers sponsored the last insurrection. And if they don't block these people, they will sponsor the next one. So we've defunded five of them. Okay, I'm going to list them. Dan Bongino, if you go to Bongino.com or BonginoReport.com, he has much fewer ads. Anything you see is not going to be programmatic. It's going to be static ads because the ad exchanges that ran on those websites, they got blocked. They, they dropped them. Uh, Charlie Kirk is the millennial white nationalist who sent 80 buses to the insurrection. 
Again, charliekirk.com no longer has programmatic ads. Glenn Beck has lost some of his ad exchanges. Tim Pool, timcast.com is his website. They've lost their programmatic ad exchanges. And now we're asking, well, those guys all got dropped from the ad tech industry because they are not brand safe. And now, how is Fox News any different? Well, it, it, they're, they're bigger and it's going to be harder, but uh, I hope you get them. <laughs> I hope you so get what them. we're doing is <laughs> everyone has come on board with us and we've been so grateful. So what happens is ad exchanges have these promises and in their terms of service, they are clear that they say they don't work with publishers who publish election disinformation. And what we can do now is we have a list of every ad exchange that works with all of these websites, and we can email them all en masse and say, listen, how do you square this? These ad tech executives have made millions and billions of dollars off of the big lie just by doing business with these websites. And what we're doing is we're saying, we can see you do this. And 60,000 people have signed up with us to ask these ad exchanges about Fox and other disinformation practitioners. Steve Bannon, we are constantly finding him sneaking back onto the supply chain. He has been blacklisted from the entire industry. Nobody wants to be on America's War Room, which is his new show. And yet, just a month ago, we found that Procter & Gamble, Procter & Gamble is the biggest advertiser in the world. They spend 11 billion dollars annually on ads, we found that they were inadvertently funding Steve Bannon through a sneaky weather network. And they thought it was just a weather network, but actually the money was going towards the next insurrection. And, Hmm. you know, we had these 60,000 people email Procter & Gamble with us. And within a week, we did not see Procter & Gamble ads on that show any longer because because everyone said something. All right, everybody listening, guess what you're going to be asked to do? You got a pen? You ready? Because Claire's going to tell you. Okay, the most powerful thing that we can do right now as consumers is tell advertisers and ad exchanges, we see you, we see what's going on. Advertisers do not want you to do this. Ad exchanges do not want you to do this. So it is a powerful message when you go to checkmyads.org slash Fox and just give us your email address. We're not looking for any of your information, any of your personal information. We just need your email address so that we can email you templates that say, here's the ad tech executive. This is his name or her name. Here's their email address, maybe their legal counsel as well. And here's a template that says, this is what it says in your terms of service. And this is what you're actually doing. This is your business practice. Could you answer me? What's going on here? And one after the other, these insurrections have dropped from the ad exchanges. We have cut millions of dollars away from disinformation this year, and we will be continuing to do it this next year. So if you go to checkmyads.org slash Fox, that's where you can make a difference. That's where you can really get your voice heard. You know, we don't have to wait for politicians to fix this country for us. There are ways that we can leverage our own voice and do it ourselves. Claire, there's been a lot of talk about Twitter in the news lately. Um, If Elon Musk is going to unleash uh, 
hate speech on that platform. Is there something that you can do about that? We're watching Twitter and Elon Musk very carefully. Elon Musk is very pro-Russia, you know, and he has Starlink, which is the Internet service that he provided to Ukraine. It has been reported that he has cut off different sections when Ukraine has depended on it for military action. He is friends with some of America's greatest enemies. And we are watching very carefully because a lot of the disinformation that we see is not just domestic. It's also international. It's also coming from Russia, China. And we need to really watch Twitter for if the rhetoric starts ramping up, because as soon as it does, we know, we personally know Fortune 500 advertisers who maybe not, uh, who may not be public about this, but will absolutely behind the scenes just cut their ads from the platform. And then we're going to really see Twitter's stock fall. We're going to see the demise of this forum that has been so powerful in the media and political landscape to date. We'll see. I mean, Elon just yesterday wrote, I think it was yesterday or the day before, wrote a letter about how, oh, he does realize that advertisers do have standards. And, uh, and we'll see if he understands how serious advertisers are about those standards. Right. But hate speech just in the day after he took it um, came way up on that on that platform uh, because uh, uh, just just his being there seemed to give them license to behave badly. Yeah. I'm glad you're looking you're at right. it. <clears throat> are there, right. are there no, legal things we lot. can do? If these if these ad exchanges have terms of service, who has standing to sue them when they violate their terms of service? Would it have to be an advertiser? The advertisers do. Yeah, the advertisers do. And, you know, we have a newsletter. It's called Branded. It goes out to thousands of advertisers um, every every time we have an investigation, which is right now mm-hmm. about every two weeks to once a month. You can find it at checkmyads.org slash branded if you want some really salacious gossip about the ad tech industry. Um, we... We know that advertisers really don't have control over their own campaigns right now. And the answer is to get control. So one of the things that they can do is they can check their ads, make sure that they have the data that is required for them to check their ads in their contracts. They also can ask for refunds when they realize that their ads have gone to places that are not brand safe, they should be pressuring ad tech companies for refunds. And we know that advertisers have been doing this at a greater and greater rate because they're sick of this. I mean, let alone all the fraud in the industry. This is a brand safety risk. And so they're doing that. There's one more thing. The third thing is that um, we know that FTC and FinCEN are looking into the ad tech industry because this is a massive massively beneficial place if you want to money launder. And we're just we're not just talking about publishers who publish disinformation at this point. We're also talking about some ad exchanges themselves. I mean, some of them are really small and they just are banks of money, ads and data. And they distribute these money, ads and data as they see fit between their publishers and they can lie and they can money launder. And so what we're saying very loudly is that this entire ad tech system, if it is not built to be more transparent, is a national security risk, is an election security risk. And that's the third thing that we can do is really push for regulation 
and transparency within the system. I can't imagine that uh, um, people who have websites won't be grateful. Uh, years ago, I ran the Chicago Sun-Times, and we had a, we had a, you know, we had a site, and there were uh, ad slots on it, and we had relationships with ad exchanges. And constantly, I would be stunned by ads that were appalling that would show up. And we finally got rid of many, I think most of the exchanges, because they, they were completely irresponsible and not transparent in any way. The last 20 years, it feels like these middlemen have just become like a, like a, like a mafia. You know, there's, they say one mm-hmm. thing to one party and then do another with another party. And they have so much leverage and access to information that either parties don't have. I mean, news publishers are shutting down at extravagant rates. And disinformation is thriving. Who is in charge of that? Well, it's these middlemen. They are the traffic controllers of the entire digital media ecosystem. And we need to pay a lot more attention to these groups of people, to these, to these corporations, because they are making so much money and taking, you know, 30 to 50 percent away every time they are trafficking an ad. They take 30 to 50 percent of the money. So it doesn't even yeah, go to the crazy. publisher half the time. Crazy. Just, so, so it's a real mess, and we got to do more. <laughs> you, you've got you've accomplished so much since you know since we talked last June. What have been the biggest challenges? Well, the biggest challenge is that some of the industry folks really want to equivocate about what we're talking about, and they say, "Oh, well, this is a difference of opinion." And the, the fact is, is that it's not. I mean, we are talking about the quantifiable increase in hate crimes in urban areas. The hate crimes in urban areas increased 39% last year. Why do we think that is? It's because of hateful rhetoric, scapegoating of marginalized populations, and bigotry. We're talking conspiracy theories. This is not a question of conservatism any longer. This is not a question of opinion. We're talking about violent extremism and the rise of global authoritarianism, and we have to draw a line. And it's not just that we as, as consumers have to draw a line, or even we as marketers. Corporations in their entirety have to realize that actually violence and instability are bad for business. Democracy is good for capitalism, and we have to, as an entire industry, draw the line and say, you know, politics aside, some things are just inappropriate. And the industry mm-hmm. at the advertiser level have said this, but at the ad tech level, they're still equivocating. There's a lot of bad faith arguments out there. We think that it is going to change. We know that there are very good people within this industry, but the fact is, is that we just have to shed way more light, which is why we're asking for everyone to join us. Yep. I, I, do you know if, if um, Congress is looking at some kinds of um, consumer protection laws or, you know, to regulate around this industry? In, on January 1st, the Corporate Transparency Act came into play, which would give FinCEN the ability to look into the beneficial owner of corporations. Right now, or up until then, they... They couldn't. Um, we think that that is a good move. Right now, the Congress 
people that we know are thinking about it from a national security perspective. So uh, Senator Wyden, mm-hmm. for instance, wrote a letter to mm-hmm. Google uh, insisting that Google make transparent and drop the Russian pop- propaganda outlets that they had been working with. You know, we've found again and again that Google is defying American sanctions and working with Russian propaganda outlets and Russian psyops that are targeting Americans with election disinformation. And well, that's a big that's a big piece of news. Um, well, yeah. <laughs> so, so where do how do you know this, and and why is this not better known? Well, we write about it at checkmyads.org/branded, yep. and just recently. On October 17th, there was Ad Week, and there was a big uh, protest at Ad Week in New York City about, and I say big, but really it was a lot of folks published around Google's lack of transparency that week, including us. And mm-hmm. if you look at uh, checkmyads.org slash branded, you'll see a story that says, listen, Google is a dark money transfer. 89% of the publisher accounts on the Google Ad Exchange are non-transparent. And Google says, when when this is brought up, they say, oh, well, you know, we have to protect publishers because some publishers are victims within a government that doesn't want them to operate. And so we hide their ownership or their, um, their the name of their company from the public so to protect them. But again and again, we found that's just not the case. And actually they're playing into the hands of people who are doing very bad things at a very large level. Um, And so we're, we're saying to Google, like, what are you hiding? What are you hiding from advertisers? We cannot as advertisers check what is happening on the supply chain. What is happening with our campaigns? If they're not transparent and they are the only ones who have non-transparent accounts, all the other ad exchanges have listed everything publicly. Yeah. Wow, Claire, that's so interesting. Look, we only have a few minutes left. How big is your organization? How are you funded? How do you tell people who are listening that that you're legitimate? We have eight employees. Uh, it's mostly uh, it's mostly researchers right now, and we are so grateful for who we call our checkmates. Those are people who give sort of five to thirty dollars monthly. Uh, those those checkmates keep us afloat. We, we also accept major donations and also donations from foundations like the democracy fund. And we're, we are growing. And the more we have in our, in our resources, the more we can research these dark money, sort of nefarious corners of the internet. And the more we can pressure ad exchanges to be more transparent and to let advertisers check their ads and to do the right thing. It's super important work. And, um, you know, sort of amazing that nobody was doing it before. So you and, and your partner ha- have done a great service to the country. I'm, I'm really pleased that you've spent time today with me and with our audience explaining this. And one last time, tell everybody where to go. Go to checkmyads.org. If you want to write emails, checkmyads.org slash fox. If you want to donate, check myads.org slash membership. Thank you so much for having me and for listening, for doing something about the state of democracy in America. I think this is an emergency moment. 
And the fact that people are signing up with us gives me hope. All right, everybody, get 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 going. You know what to do. Claire, thank you. Really appreciate it. We will catch up after the election and talk about what you've seen and, and the progress you're making. I look forward. Onward. Thank you very much. You bet. All right, we're going to take a little break. And when we come back, we're going to talk with Cameron Stevenson, uh, a, a reporter in Arizona. Um, you're going to want to hear what's going on there. Stay with us. You're looking at the big picture with Edwin Eisentraft on WCPT 820. Welcome back. I'm joined by Cameron Stevenson. He's the managing editor of the Copper Courier. It's a digital newsroom in Arizona. Cameron, welcome. Hey, thanks, Edwin. Thanks for having me. Well, uh, time is uh, short before the polls close in Arizona. I'd like you to update us you know, on the governor's race, the senator's race, and the secretary of state race. And then let's talk about the vigilantes and the drop boxes. We got a lot to cover. So let's start with the governor's race. A little bit of time. Yeah. Yeah. So so the governor's race right now is, you know, if you're looking at polls, uh, it's neck and neck, uh, depending on who you ask, you know, either Carrie Lake, the Republican, or Katie Hobbs, the Democrat, is, you know, up or down by four or five points. Um, So it's, Statistically tied, uh, a lot of it's going to come down to, uh, you know, how activated the Republican base is uh, compared to how wide of a coalition coalition of voters uh, Katie Hobbs is able to bring together between Democrats, independents and and Republicans who don't support the far right Trump slate of Republican candidates who are um, who are on the ballot here in Arizona. And just so we're clear for the listeners that a few who don't know about Carrie Lake. She is a full-on MAGA um, lunatic, but but articulate, (laughs) fun to watch, you know, really good on camera, you know, very clear on her message. But what's coming out of her mouth is anti-democratic, hate elections, you know, I mean, just nonsense. Yeah, so she she was a, a news anchor here locally for decades. Uh, household names, billboards all over the place. Very much knows how to work a camera. Very charismatic. Um, you know, just someone that is is very good with people. Uh, but what she's saying, like you said, is a lot of lies, a lot of inaccuracies, uh, a lot of fear, hate. Um, in those things, you know, they they rile up certain voters. But I I don't think in the end it's going to be enough to put her over the edge. Well, that would be interesting. Um, let's turn to, I mean, Katie Hobbs, the Democrat, to be clear, has been, um, she made her um, name, at least out of the state, for the work she did to assure election integrity in Arizona. Yes. Yeah. She's our Secretary of State right now. Um, she won statewide ele- uh, election in 2018. So she's proven that she is popular among Arizona voters, and she was the one who was able to certify the election here in, in 2020. Um, she has been very much a defender of fair and free elections, and she has faced some severe repercussions for that. Herself and her family members have been getting death threats uh, ever since the 2020 election. Uh, and look, she, after you know, what happened last night to Nancy Pelosi's husband, we know that we have to take this very seriously. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, these aren't harmless threats. There, there have actually been several people who have been 
charged and arrested by the FBI because they have been threatening elections here in Arizona. Um, we'll, we'll get to that part of the story in a minute. Let's turn to the U.S. Senate race. Yeah, so the Senate race, uh, again, depending on who you ask, which polls you're looking at, uh, is either very close or Mark Kelly has a substantial and comfortable lead. Uh, now, that race is, is a lot more tied to national politics. You know, people are looking at what's happening in Congress, what's happening in the White House. But by and large, Mark Kelly has been a very popular senator. He's been someone who, in, you know, in a similar vein to Kirsten Sinema and to some extent John McCain, has positioned himself as, you know, an independent thinker who's working for Arizonans. Uh, you know, he has a large array of prominent Republicans who have backed him. Uh, he's proven in the past that he has the support of independents, uh, whereas Blake Masters, his Republican opponent, is, again, a very extreme fringe candidate who won the primary because he was able to rile up a very, you know, rabid Republican base here. Uh, but he hasn't done anything to to sway people in the middle or let alone people on the left since he won the primary. Uh, you know, he's anti-abortion. He is uh, you know, anti-climate. Uh, he doesn't really have any any positive plans for the state or the country. Sounds like the perfect MAGA candidate. Yeah. 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 You know, he's he's backed by Peter Thiel, which is you know, a, a MAGA donor in the millions. Um, and, uh, and yeah. So, so everybody's listening. Same, same. Hang on. Just so everybody listening knows. Mm -hmm. Same donor who's uh, uh, bankrolling uh, uh, J.D. in um, uh, Ohio. Right. Yeah. So, you know, he's looking to have two senators that, that he owns that the people don't. Own. It's just a hideous thing um, when you can have unlimited amounts of money and dark money in politics. Really awful. OK, so that's the that's the Senate race. And I, I'm going to let your comment about Kristen Cinema just slide for the moment. Uh, <laughs> But we'll, t we'll we'll come back to that in another era. Um, but yeah. right now, yeah. you know, so so you have Mark Kelly, the astronaut, who's been there, who's done a credible job against a you know sort of uh, dog bone chewing MAGA guy, and it's not a yeah. runaway. It's still he could he could the MAGA guy can win. I mean, it's it's not a uh, certainty, which is also yeah. frightening. Let's yeah, turn to the Secretary of State. Now, this is now that now, now that the current Secretary of State and champion of fair elections is running for governor, that you're going to have a Secretary of State that may not protect elections. Yeah, and this is where uh, just how the ballot breaks down, you know, down ballot is really going to impact our our election system and our state as a whole, move, you know, into the next few years. Uh, so there's a voting conspiracist, Mark Fincham, who's the Republican running for Secretary of State. Um, he's, you know, he's been, he went to the January 6th insurrection. He didn't go in the Capitol, but he was there, scheduled to speak. Uh, he has, in our state legislature, he proposed dozens of, uh, you know, voter restrictive uh, bills that didn't make it. Uh, he wants to get rid of our early voting system here entirely. And he wants to take the results of elections away from the voters. He wants to put it in the hands of elected officials. Uh, so, you know, if, if our state is run by Republicans, in theory, they he wants to make it so even if a Democrat wins 
election that the Republicans could override that and choose the Republican as the winner to put in office. I know people don't believe it. It's just too shocking to believe that they would actually behave this way. But people should really believe it when they tell us what they're going to do. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he's tried several times uh, in the legislature, and it's it's his intention. He's not trying to hide it. He's very open about it. Uh, but I think you're right. I think people maybe just think that it's talk, uh, and so it, it may not be taken seriously, but it absolutely oh. should be. All right. And Mr. Fincham is running against who on the Democratic side? Yeah, so he's running against Adrian Fontes. He was the county recorder uh, for Maricopa County in 2020. And so he's the one who administered those elections. And what he did there was used as a model nationwide for for early voting, just how to collect the ballots, how to distribute them, how to make sure they're all counted securely and fairly and how to basically allow as many people access to voting as possible. Um, so he's very familiar with the role, with the responsibilities. He's got a lot of experience. Uh, and he is and making marks. Even the cyber ninjas found nothing amiss. And, and they tore yeah. everything apart looking for bamboo, right? But they found nothing. Yeah. They, right? So he's yeah, been battle-tested. I would consider them uh, credible in any sense. But there were also independent audits that were by recognized, um, you know, election auditors who also found no discrepancies, no issues. Uh, you know, he's run tried and true elections. He, he knows so he's obviously doing. he's winning in a landslide, right? Uh, see, uh, I would love to say that. Uh, but last time I checked, uh, there's a, a large margin. I think about 15 percent are still undecided in this race. And part of it is because it's, it's a down ballot election. He doesn't get as much playtime, uh, you know, airtime as, you know, governor, Senate, Congress. And so a lot of people are, you know, as of a few weeks ago, we're still unsure who to vote for in this election. I think as it gets, you know, now that people have ballots and they're looking through and they're doing research, I would hope that they're looking into both candidates. And when you compare the two, it's, it's a clear answer, you know, who is qualified, let alone uh, capable of, of handling our election system. So, Cameron, but it's been clear in all three of the races we've just talked about, the differences are so big, governor, senator and secretary of state. Um, but Arizona is is a red and a blue state. And it, uh, it's nervous making. Yeah. No, you know, if you look at the previous elections, uh, even in 2020, when, when Biden took the state and, and Mark Kelly won his uh, race to be in the Senate, uh, Maricopa County, the county elections all went Republican. Uh, the legislature stayed a Republican legislature. And it's it's all about getting that getting those down ballot races to mean as much as, as the big ticket items. Uh, now, there yep. is. Some interesting data points I can I can bring up regarding our early voting so far. Um, Let's hear it. So yeah, so in in 2018, around this time, um, in 2018 is, is again when Kirsten Sinema won. Uh, we had a, that's when uh, Katie Hobbs won. At this time of early voting, uh, the Republican Party had 107,000 ballot advantage, like meaning that 107,000 more Republicans had voted at this time than Democrats. Uh, this time around, 2022, uh, Democrats have a 23,000 advantage. And so 
it, you know, what we're seeing is that there is a lot of enthusiasm on the Democratic side. Um, now, the Republican side, a lot of that could be because their candidates and elected officials have spent the past two to four years um, telling people that it's not safe to vote early. And so we are expecting a lot of Republicans to be voting day of. Um, yep. But there's our, our, you know, we're already seeing a, a significant advantage on the Democratic side. All right. So let's turn to early voting. Um, Arizona uses drop boxes and you, you're now famous across the country for your uh, armed. Yeah. yeah your, your, your armed armchair sitters who are um, in, in some instances referred to the FBI for uh, uh, trying to intimidate voters dropping off their their ballots. What is all that about? Yeah, so that, again, it goes into, you know, years of um, violent and dangerous rhetoric that Republicans have been saying about voting, um, along with the debunked, you know, pseudo-documentary 2000 Mules that alleged that people were, you know, dropping off more ballots than they should have been. Uh, That has led to an organization called Clean Elections USA that is encouraging people to go to ballot drop boxes and basically wait and watch and and people because they are expecting to find cheaters um they're coming with weapons for for whatever reason tactical uh, it might also have to do with the fact that the arizona republican party offered a fifty thousand dollar reward for anyone who caught someone committing voter fraud and so they put a they put a bounty out on voters essentially um, now, what they're doing is intimidating, um, although a judge has at this point allowed them to to remain where they're doing to do has allowed them to keep doing what they're doing under the First Amendment. Um, now, yeah, I don't fault the judge for that. I, I don't fault. I mean, that's a tough call. You know, the right to peaceably assemble is deep in our society. And if they sit there and they don't bother anybody. Well, they can sit there and you soak up the nice Arizona sun. But if they if they walk across the street with a weapon in hand and say to somebody, you shouldn't be dropping anything off here, you know, you're a mule, then they should uh, be arrested and carted off and charged with voter intimidation. Yeah, exactly. Um, now, some of them have been talking to voters and people have reported it and they are being investigated because of that. Um, yep. Because, yeah, but that's that's kind of where, you know, their First Amendment right ends when they're infringing on someone else's safety and protection in a village to yeah. vote. And you say they're being investigated. Cases were referred to the FBI. Yes. Yeah, exactly. All right. Look, at one other race got my attention, and it is it got my attention because it's so different than the rest of the politics we have this cycle. You have something in Arizona that we don't have in, in a lot of other states called the Corporation Commission. And I, I, you know, I want you to explain what that is. And then it got my attention because you guys published pieces on two of the candidates who view, whose views, wow, they could not be more different. But it was a throwback to a better time because the differences weren't about lies. They were just huge differences on policy. Um, and I, yes. I thought that was really interesting. And I'd love you to talk a minute about that commission, what it does, and then uh, the, you know, the two views. I think it's interesting. Yeah, no, it's it's fascinating. Uh, and I got to be honest, when I first, <laughs> I, I've lived here my whole life. When I first found out what the Corporation Commission was, 
<laughs> I was very surprised at how it all worked. Uh, but basically the way it goes is our utilities here, so electric, water, gas, they're run by private corporations. Um, and those private corporations are regulated by a five-member body which is a, uh, that's elected by the public known as the Corporation Commission. And they set regulations. They determine whether or not these corporations can raise or lower their rates. Um, and then they can hold them accountable as well. Um, you know, we, we saw that there was an instance where they had been raising rates beyond what was acceptable. And it led to people in the summer, their power being turned off and people died because of it. And mm-hmm. so they, you know, they can hold people accountable for that. They kind of determine how solar can be implemented, how electric vehicle chargers can be distributed throughout the state and, and how, and how the state tackles climate or addresses climate issues uh, from, you know, a utility standpoint. So they really have a lot of power, but it's a, kind of a complex role and, and so it really doesn't get a lot as much attention as I think it deserves. But it's elected. I mean other states have public utility commissions or boards usually appointed, but yours is elected. Okay, so now you have two people running, one who is an environmentalist and the other who is a corporatist who just says, you know what, you shouldn't regulate any of this and you should just leave it all to the utilities to figure out how to get cheap electricity to people. Yeah, exactly. So so the first one that you mentioned was uh, Lauren Kuby. She's a former uh, city council member for the city of Tempe. Um, and yeah, she's, she's a climate expert. Um, she, you know, she's a, she teaches at ASU. Uh, she just has extensive knowledge on ways to protect climate, uh, protect our water, preserve our water, which is a big issue here, and do it in a way that is equitable to people and also holds these corporations accountable. Uh, and one of her opponents uh, is Kevin Thompson. He's a Republican. Um, he wants to get rid of things like vehicle subsidies. Uh, he, he doesn't think that if you buy an electric vehicle, you should be incentivized because of that. Um, he also wants to get rid of incentives for things like solar, uh, which is a large reason that people get solar here. Um, it's, it's an expensive investment. And so being able to get some money back on that really helps people decide to, to take that plunge. Um, and so, yeah, he wants to get rid of those sort of things. He's, you know, fine with coal, uh, doesn't think that the government should be in the business of regulating corporations, uh, which is kind of a tricky thing for someone who wants to be a regulator to, to take that stance. Well, okay, so that can't be close either, but it, it is, isn't it? it? It is, and a lot of it has to do with just the complexity of the role. You know, people hear the, the word governor. They know what a governor does. People know what the U.S. Senate is. They see things like corporation commission, and you know, they may not know what it is, um, but they may think to themselves that they're, you know, if they're fiscally conservative uh, in that sense, they they may have a tendency to, to lean towards a Republican candidate without even fully knowing what their stance are or what the position entails. So it's it's going to be a close one. And this one, I think, is a lot of it's going to come out to youth voter turnout. Uh, climate issues are a big priority for for the younger generation, uh, mm. and so though you know though, those voters, if they turn out, and it's looking like they have so far, um, the majority of, of youth vote, you know, Gen Z, millennials that are polled say climate is one of their top issues, and so if they turn out. Uh, there's a better chance for these positions going to climate experts, people who are concerned about about climate issues. 
Well, it looks like a lot of the difference um, in 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 the outcome of these elections is going to be how um, citizens who don't really follow the news closely, don't follow politics closely, how they vote. Right. Because people who read the news every day, they know the differences between these candidates and they, their minds are made up. They've, they figured it out. But there are a lot of voters yeah. who, thank God, have other things to do with their lives and are not <laughs> spending them like I spend mine. Right. And they right. and they're out there doing really interesting things. And but they don't have a lot of information and they're not going to spend the money to buy have a newspaper subscription. And they're not, you know, not all of them have cable TV subscriptions. So they get limited news. Right. Yeah. You're trying to it, do it, something it, about that, too. Yes, definitely. And one of the things that sounds like it's helpful, but actually I think uh, in some cases might be more disenfranchising than encouraging is that, so we do early voting. So people have been, you know, early voters got their ballots a few weeks ago. Uh, along with your ballot comes a, a voter guidebook where it lists all of the candidates, all of the ballot proposition has information about all of them. So you can, you have the research right there. The problem is it's about 300 pages. And so it's, uh, you know, if, if you're not reading the news, if if you're not watching the news, you're probably not going to read through a 300-page pamphlet. Um, and so what what we do is, you know, we try and break down the news and what these candidates are for in as one in as simple terms as possible. Um, you know, we try not to get too complicated or too into the weeds into political jargon or this, you know, political insidery stuff that most people don't care about, and a lot of it really doesn't matter. Um, and we also are very proactive in the way that we distribute news, um, you know, similar to how back in the day there were paper boys who would, you know, for the New York Times, they're going to Manhattan. For the Boston Globe, they'd go to Boston. They wouldn't go to other cities or states because um, that's where their audience is. Um, we do very similar. We do we boost our news um, in certain regions so that, you know, people in Tempe can know about what we're reporting on candidates in Tempe. People in Legislative District 9 can know about the candidates in District 9 because uh, it doesn't do us much good if people in Tucson are reading about candidates in Flagstaff. Right. And you're talking about about distribution of your news online, right? You don't yeah, have a exactly. paywall, but you're you're alerting people yeah. about these stories online. Really, it's yeah, a really yeah, interesting we, strategy to get at voters who, you know, otherwise are are not they just don't have a regular news source. Exactly. And another thing that we do we're very proactive with is uh, doing reporting directly on the social media. Uh, there's a lot of our stories that live solely on Instagram. Uh, a lot of our stories are our videos on TikTok. Uh, you know, we, we do things on Facebook, Twitter, uh, of course. But a lot of people who don't aren't interested in news, don't have time for it. Um, they may not go to your article, an article on our website, but they they will scroll through a carousel or watch a video on TikTok or, or Instagram, and and we're we're seeing a lot of success there, where we're reaching people who otherwise um, either aren't getting information or are getting misinformation or disinformation from uh, you know fake news corporations outlets. Right. So I mean, I meant to talk to you only about the politics and the elections because that's really the moment we're in, but. Always the conversations come back to journalism and how voters learn the information that they need to learn in order to be the sovereigns that the Constitution says they are. 
Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and that's that's really our role is, is to get people the news uh, no matter how they can receive it. Cameron, what's next week going to look like in terms of campaigning? Uh, is it going to be crazy? I mean, up here, you know, President Obama is in Wisconsin uh, stumping for a Senate candidate uh, today. Um, what, what's com- what's coming in the next week in Arizona? Yeah. So right now we do have, you know, high profile people coming through. Uh, Barack Obama did recently endorse Katie Hobbs. Um, and then if you're looking on the other side, uh, Glenn King came recently in stumps for Carrie uh, Lake. And so we, we have high profile people coming in. A lot of money is getting poured into the state, uh, you know, a lot of dark money. Um, but there's also a lot of on the ground voter outreach. Uh, and one of the nice things about early voting is once you vote, uh, the campaign stop reaching out to you uh, because they're only reaching out to people who haven't voted yet. And so it, it's really, you know, fine tuning their messaging for people who have their ballots yet but haven't returned them. Uh, a lot of door to door contact, a lot of texting, a lot of phone calls. Um, it's it's really, you know, from from the Democratic side anyway, a lot of it is is them just reaching out to voters, addressing their concerns and and talking the ballot through with them so that people can understand because it's it is overwhelming when you get a ballot in the mail and it's front and back and there's all these positions you probably have never heard of uh, you know and, and we have a bunch of judges on there ballot propositions uh it's overwhelming and so that that one-on-one personal contact really goes a long way well all right so good luck out there next week say stay stay safe and keep telling everybody what's going on and um uh, I'm really interested in that Dropbox and those vigilantes out front. I hope nobody gets shot. Oh I just, you know, the temptation to escalate is so big. And um, yeah. I hope it doesn't happen. Yep. Me too. I mean, we're, we're, you know, we're hopefully, hopefully bracing for after the election too. It, it takes about 10 days for us to count our ballots. And, and in 2020, we saw um, people getting increasingly more aggressive as the ballots were being counted. Um, and so we're, oh. we're very hopeful and, and, and really, you know, we don't want any violence here. Uh, we just want our free and fair right. elections to continue. And and I assume that steps have been taken to make sure the count can be had in, securely and people don't storm the facility and all of that. Yeah. 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 They've, they've upped security. Um, they're, they're, you know, very careful to, to protect the election workers, both the employees and the volunteers. Um, and thankfully, we have a lot of dedicated election workers who are you know, putting their lives at risk, essentially, uh, to make sure that the democratic process continues. Most Americans believe in elections. They believe in democracy. They're willing to volunteer. They're willing to work for it. Um, it's a sm- smaller minority that's trying to impose all this nonsense on the rest of us. And hopefully we will stand up and be counted. Cameron, thank you very, very much for this update. Uh, I look forward to keeping a careful eye on the news that you guys produce in the next couple of weeks. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Always good you talk. bet. All right. That was Cameron Stevenson, the managing editor of the Copper Courier. We're going to break for the news. When we come back, the incomparable A.B. Stoddard uh, will be with me, and uh, you won't want to miss that. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendrath on WCPT 820. 
Welcome back. A little after three o'clock here in the upper Midwest. Uh, this is the hour I take your calls at 773-763-9278. But not before I talk to the incomparable A.B. Stoddard. She's a longtime uh, journalist, associate editor and columnist at Real Clear Politics. And A.B., welcome back. Thanks for having me. You, you, look, you're one of my favorite guests. And I have been so eager to talk with you again before the polls close. <laughs> but the burden of this election cycle on those of us who've been paying close attention is is really almost too much. I, I had Senator Whitehouse on earlier, and he went through his, the indictment that is his new book on the damage of dark money in our politics. And I tell myself and I tell all our listeners, vote, vote, because it's so important and I say that with certainty that it is still legitimate to vote. Um, how do you acknowledge the structural problems in the democracy and its legitimacy at the same time? How do you convince people with all the noise we've heard that their votes still matter? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I do think that um, there is this portion, this radicalized portion of the electorate who believes Donald Trump's big lie, and it is really, the big lie is really threatening this country in so many ways. Um, and it's obviously becoming violent, but, but I think that other people still believe, uh, that the, that they're, that the, that elections today are verifiable, uh, that they are transparent and they're accountable. Uh, we are heading into a new space, as you and I have talked about before, where we are not entirely sure um, what this uh, radicalized coalition uh, is going to do in response to the 2022 elections and the 2024 elections. So we just we're heading into kind of a no man's land where we know that the systems in place are uh, protected and um, updated and, and and the people are working really hard to retain the pe- the officials and the volunteers that support it and, up, and, and hold it up uh, it, it, when many of them after 2020 have been, you know, leaving in droves. Um, but we, we don't know if election deniers who are going to win and several of them will, uh, we don't know what they're going to do in, in two years. And we don't know if in a few weeks, those who lose will will refuse to concede their losses. Uh, so, so I, I'm confident in our system and I try to tell people that they should be confident in our system, but I yep. don't know how, you know, the radical actors are going to behave. Well, I, I mean, I expect, look, I don't want to play pollster in this week, but let's, so, so I'm going to skip ahead and, and talk with you about what happens after. And let's pretend it's the extremes. If, one party's losses are bigger than expected. If Democrats get their clocks cleaned, I think folks are already lined up to blame the progressive wing, um, even though most Democrats running across the country aren't in that wing. I see that. On the other hand, if the GOP loses badly, unexpectedly, I think the popular history of delusions is they take a long time to dissipate. So I expect the Republican response to losing would be, to double down on blaming that they're saying the election was crooked rather than to, you know, walk back to the center. What do you think? You know, if they, if there is a, so I'm predicting 
either a purple wave or a red wave, but not a blue wave. A purple yeah. wave means that Democrats are extremely energized and come out and they mitigate their losses. And then we get mixed results. Um, in that scenario, if the Democrats were to say, let's say, hold on to the Senate and or the House, um, I think that Mitch McConnell and people like him would be very sober about the issue of abortion. I think that he would not say the issue that, that, that the election was stolen. I think that he would say we have to reexamine these trigger laws and how extreme they are and what this country um, is, is ready for um, and willing to, to unite around in terms of some kind of sane answer to this issue now that Roe has been eliminated. I think he knows it's a huge political liability. And I think he would be very, uh, I think that people like him would be very upfront about that as a liability for them. Um, I do not think that people will rush to the polls to vote for Democrats in this election because they think inflation is fine. It would clearly be because of abortion, and it would clearly be because they feared a radicalized GOP um, and January and the revelations from the January 6th hearings. And I think that Mitch McConnell is likely to respond to that in a rational way and say Trump remains a huge problem for us, radicalized Republicans who, you know, who, who vacuum in conspiracy theories every day and those that flirt with them are a huge problem for us. Normal voters can't tolerate this extremism. That's what I think the postmortem would be from Republicans if Democrats hold on very well in this environment. Not That's so not interesting. Trump, obviously. Not Trump. Right. I think people who want to win again, you know, Paul Ryan, he, you know, his new line is that we've never lost so much so fast as we have with Donald Trump. So, so that's what I think will happen um, among sort of what's left of the establishment of the R's. But most certainly that, you know, the radicalized, the Marjorie Taylor Greens, they'll all say the elections were rigged if the Democrats hold on. Yeah, well, you're, what you're predicting is something I, I've waited to see, which is some adult Republicans fighting back against the madness of their base and their bomb throwers. You know, I mean, I have Mitch McConnell wrote a very decent uh, response to the horror that happened to Nancy Pelosi's husband last night. But most of the party, eh, you know what? I mean, they're they're saying things from tepid to downright hostile. So I actually saw tweets yesterday from Chuck Grassley, Ted Cruz, Matt Gates, and then Steve Scalise, Kevin McCarthy. McConnell's was, was very good. Ben Sass's was very good. Yep. Um, I almost feel the word disgusted was used several times. almost feel like they had like a, t- a template that they were following uh, because the response was pretty. I was I was surprised that, you know, that like, I didn't see Josh Hawley step out there. But, you know, the point is enough of them did. Rick Scott that I thought it was kind of interesting. What I do not see, what I do not see, and it's very concerning to me, is any kind of comment from them on um, on calling for calm and and peace um, on Election Day, on November 8th, when we know that our government is preparing for increasing threats, serious potential for altercations and potentially violence, and that people who are working the polls are scared. So if if, if they don't want to tie this attack and basically the attempted assassination of the Speaker of the House and the subsequent attack, you know, an injury to her husband. If they don't want to tie that to violence on Election Day, that's a mistake in my eyes. 
that this is their opportunity to say to a radicalized base who's running around threatening election officials with these lies, look, we're going to have a calm election and we don't want anyone to get hurt in 10 days. And, and what I don't see is them making that leap. And, and yep. I think that that's a problem for us because I, I think the tensions are high and I'm really nervous about election day. I, I am, too. And I just was on the literally right before you were on, I was talking to a reporter in Arizona who reminded me that it takes them about 10 days to count their ballots because of the way they do it. Yeah. Yeah. If it's close. Yeah. And, and he says we're terrified that, y- you know, if it's close and we're counting ballots for 10 days, that there's no facility secure enough on the planet for what could happen. And that's what I wrote. I wrote about this a week ago. And of course, the response from the Trumpers was, oh, you know, why are you just asking for Republicans to call for peace and calm? And oh, oh, you know, Antifa and all that crap they always talk about and how, you know, Donald Trump called for peace on January 6th. I mean, this isn't this is an irrational conversation. In the piece, I talked about how we all know if, if Republicans don't stand up between now and November 8th, we have the scenario you just described. We have. I'm sorry. I, I'm stunned for one second. I'm stunned. Did you just say to me, I think you said somebody says Donald Trump called for peace on January 6th? This is the, these are the emails that I get when I write. They, I think he was, ah. the, word, the, the word peace is somewhere in the, 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 I think he said go peacefully once at the ellipse. And so they, they had that disclaimer for life and they like, oh, uh, gosh. They like email me about it. Yeah. So in this scenario, I described, I mean, I literally wrote this a week ago before the Paul Pelosi attack. And I described there will be close races that are not called. And we can count on Donald Trump to go on Truth Social and say, see, it's been rigged. Stop the count. Stop the steal. Stop the crap. Whatever he's going to say, right? Yeah. Are the Republican officials going to wait till then to say we need to lower the temperature? Or are they going to do it before the 8th? Or are they going to be quiet then? I mean, right, how cowardly are they going to be? Because those well, that's, that's we have some history on that. The scenario just, you described is terrifying. <sighs> Um, okay. Oh, I, I, yeah, I'm really worried about it. I mean, the, the, you know, on the, on the democratic side, I think it was interesting. Um, I don't think they peaked too early. I think it's a turnout election. I, I think it's more competitive than any of us thought it would be six months ago, but very, very hard, right? Very, very hard. Uh, and it always was going to be. But there are elections that, that sort of surprise me. I mean, I'm, you know, Wisconsin is very close, and Ron Johnson may be the worst senator in the, of the bunch. It's surprisingly close. Um, I think it's going to be turnout. And um, I think the Dems are organized on the ground really well in the state. You know, I, I, I thought Michigan was going to be tougher. It's not for Democrats in part because they're organized really well in the state that, you know, the ground game is good. So just the nuts and bolts of, of, of the GOTV campaign, the organizing that's gone on at these state levels, that's not always transparent um, until election day, you know, between cycles. So I, I think we're, there's some surprises both ways that we just won't know about. 
Yeah, it is. So I've been calling it the black swan election because I think there are X factors within the X factors. And it's just there's so many things that could surprise. Number one, I think people are going to split their tickets. So you already have, we can see in the polling in Ohio, a bunch of Mike DeWine, Tim Ryan voters. Why Why do we know that? Because Mike DeWine has a huge buffer over his Democratic opponent, Nan Whaley. But then Tim Ryan and Vance are neck and neck because Vance is a terrible candidate. So some That's Republicans right. are not comfortable with him. And they believe that Tim Ryan, who's run an impeccable campaign, is, you know, the real authentic deal. So yep. we have you'll see that in Georgia, too. Them. Same split. Right. And we're, and we're going to see it in Arizona. We're going to see it in Pennsylvania. Just a lot. I mean, should people are going to vote for Oz and Shapiro in Pennsylvania. I don't think enough of them. I think Fetterman's going to win. But I think we're going to see ticket splitting everywhere. It's yep. interesting that you that what you're describing about the, the ground game and the get out the vote, because the Republicans operation was far superior in 2020. The Democrats really went dark in COVID. The DNC was yep. lame compared to the RNC, so maybe they've learned their lesson. Um, and, and it's true that, that that you know, I think Mandela Barnes is a weak candidate. I think Ron Johnson's also a disaster, but, you know, whatever, it's close. Uh, North Carolina, no one pays any attention, one of the tightest Senate races in the country. Um, I think that, you know, we could have upsets in either direction. John Joe O.J. wins in Colorado, beats the incumbent Michael Bennett. Everyone stunned. You know, we. I think we could also have. You know, like I said, Tim Ryan beating Dan. Some, something there could be crazy. I mean, Iowa is weird this year. Yeah, yeah. I, I do understand. I mean, I do. I also think that this, in terms of the secret, the silent vote. You know, I, I, there. Some Democratic strategists are holding out hope that in these special elections that we've had four or five of that. Um, to replace members that uh, that we've Democrats have overperformed their pre-election polling. So we're all worried about yep. polling, right? But these where they think the Democrats are either going to come even or lose or win by one, they've won by three or four or whatever. So so that what that means is, is there is there a young voter that we can't track because they don't answer polls? They don't participate in the system, but they but they show up over abortion um, also, are there going to be Republicans who are mad about abortion who don't tell their friends or their husbands, but they vote? Yep. They either don't vote or and leave or they leave parts of the ballot blank or they vote for Democrats. So I think there are so much potential for for shock that it's it's so hard for us to predict who the electorate is is going to be. Yeah. Yeah. Really interesting. Most that, look, all of this traditionally. Most midterms are always older and whiter. And so they tend to just always skew more Republican anyway. And then, yep. of course, they do bounce. They do. They bounce the party in power. Um, you know, they, they tend to come out in force Regularly. against the party in power. But I, right. I, I the high turnout numbers so far when we had the highest record turnout for a midterm in 2018. Um, again, it's just I'm just surprised that it's that both sides are so energized. Well, I, it's possible. I mean, I'm, I'm going to be an, you know, say something optimistic. It's possible that even though you and I pay a lot of attention to the politics, this is an election that has enormous consequences because politics are in the service of picking a government and the difference in what the governments will do, depending on who wins, 
is so big. They're, I mean, they're just actual consequences that that are bigger than usual. And and I think you know, abortion was the biggest like hello to people, but it isn't the only one. Um, and and for young people who care about climate, you know, I mean, I, I, I it's possible that you know, in this time of great division, the MAGA crowd has managed to unite. People who don't really talk to each other, you know, folks who are really interested in reproductive choice, folks, young people who are really interested in climate, people who are election security folks, all these, these are at stake in this election in ways they haven't been. So well, maybe they're going to show up and vote. At the same time, I mean, I think Republicans would tell you that most Americans have also not seen price hikes like this in their lifetime, 40 year high of inflation and that the average. Oh, yeah, absolutely. May get people to vote. And gonna, and, yep. And right. And they're going to, and the average voter is going to say, this government is terrible. Things never cost this much. And that, and that they're not politically engaged and not focused on these other issues. I think that abortion is just one of these things for Republicans. It's such a problem because it doesn't go away. So it's not like a Mar-a-Lago scandal or whatever. It just keeps coming. People. You and I talk about we'll, we, we will always be debating it. And so, uh, you know, I think that's that's the problem is that no one missed, no, not even the people in this country who don't follow politics, no one missed the Supreme Court decision, which it didn't go over anyone's head, you know. Right. And we it wasn't a news it. cycle event because it's impacting people's right. lives every every right. day across the country. Yep. Right. So uh, I, I just, I think that's, I understand the stickiness of inflation. I truly do. Um I can see young people voting on inflation, just curious that they, you know, that they they're in a far different place than they were 18 months ago with their finances. But mm-hmm. there are these other mitigating factors and they're profound. Wow. So um, it, it's, it is going to be interesting. I, again, I don't um, I'm not telling you that Republicans are going to you know, come out on mass and like dump Trump or anything if they have a bad night. But I do think that they're aware um, of the abortion problem. They definitely, definitely yeah. are. Um, and then I think they are aware uh, that if Blake Master, if 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 even two of those candidates don't win, let alone three. Of, of Trump Senate candidates, that'll be a problem. I mean, Mitch McConnell, will, you know, he will. I, I just that'll be a that'll be a public debate in the Republican Party. There's no yes, Mitch McConnell will have plenty to say about that. Absolutely right. Yeah. If he's not doesn't take back the Senate, he will have a lot to say about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, look, I I want to. This has been the. It, for people who watch politics, this has been a fascinating uh, election cycle, but also um, it, it's had burdens that that other cycles haven't. It's been, uh, at least speaking for myself, it's been emotionally harder to pay attention to the politics here because everything matters. So the, the stakes are so high and because the outlandish behavior is bigger. Um, and because of the actual threats of violence that are out there, I, 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 is that just you know me in Chicago, or is that something that people who are in Washington also feel? 
No, there is just a real um, incredible sense of burnout that um, and and just kind of uh, strain that uh, is has been building since um, the last election because we had a moment where we thought that we were just going to have some calm. Um, and then January 6th happened two months after uh, Biden was elected. And we have been in a, a spiral of BS um, that has only grown and is now a real threat to the country. Um, and so really hard to cover this stuff when you know so much of the country tunes it out. And you know how consequential and frightening it is. Um, and you know that we know if we're going to have a free and fair 2024 election. So it, it's a, it's, I feel the way you do and a lot of people around me do. That this just is mm -hmm. the point where it's really hard. Uh, I'm just, <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't know if you saw this cartoon that Margaret Atwood tweeted a few months ago, but it's, you know, they're, they're the mother and daughter are in their um, handmaid's tail outfits, you know, with the mm -hmm. cat mm -hmm. standing next to each other. And the, and the daughter says to the mother, why didn't you fight harder? And she says, well, gas prices were really high. Oh my gosh. And that's kind of the way, you know, that's oh. some days I feel like you do where I feel like we're speaking to a pissed off country that doesn't is not contemplating the issues we're contemplating and is, and they're mad about prices and we, and I, and we're sympathetic to that, but, but that they're tuning all this out and equating Republicans with Democrats and equating, you know, matters of policy with, um, you know, um, weird stuff. Of, uh, I mean, weird like, stuff. yeah, like actually matters of policy now to me, are not as important as the constitutional order. Um, if we don't get that right, we will have no policy. So yeah. it's really hard to have that conversation with people who aren't following it. And I, I want to be honest with listeners and help them deal with this um, because we have to not get burned out. We have to stay in this fight. And, and it isn't going to be over this cycle. I mean, even if, you know, the Democrats win the lottery and retain the House and, and the Senate, it's not going to be over this cycle. We're going to have to get through the next presidential election um, before we before we begin to be able to put this in the rearview mirror. And um, and that means it's a long haul. And I, I want people to be ready for that. I want them to take care of themselves because it's a long I want you to take care of yourself so that you're here. For this. I, mean, I, I took my son. We went to a Bulls game, you know, the other day. It felt great. Almost normal. Right. Almost normal. Um, yeah. It, w w it, this is this is not a short term problem we're in. No, you are right. And um, right. We're, we're in this. We're in a you're, you're right. I mean, we, the 2024 election and whether or not it can be stolen is, or, or or attempted to be stolen is is really the emergency. Right. And then, um, yeah, if the Democrats were to hold on. First of all, they face a terrible map in the Senate in 2024 and will not have the Senate in 2024. It's exceedingly yep. unlikely. Yep. So there's that. 
And if they were to retain control of both chambers, it gives the Republicans an advantage in the presidential cycle as well. Um, and we're just looking at a 2023 that, that most Americans are just not contemplating. And I know we've discussed this before, multiple investigations of Hunter Biden, the impeachment of Joe Biden, the impeachment of Merrick Garland, investigations of Dr. Fauci, Dr. Fauci, January 6th committee, which still dissolved, Afghanistan withdrawal, the impeachment of Secretary Mayorkas. I mean, this is going to be a, a Republicans in the House, which is like the likely scenario, even by a few seats, is going to be um, not a lasting matter three ring circus, but some kind of crazy house on fire, you know, mad situation. Yeah. And and um, and at the same time, when we see, you know, on the, the leadership on the Democratic side, um, really uh, entering. Um, well, I mean, I expect that Joe Biden won't run again and I expect Pelosi won't be won't stand for leadership and will leave the Congress, which when you open up those two contests, for, for the leadership team in the House and the and the primary for the presidency, um, the party will be in flux at a time when um, the Republican Party will be going crazy. So it's it's a lot. It's 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 that's separate from the free and fair election that we're worried about in two years, right? So it's a lot. Yeah, it's really it's an enormous amount. It, yeah. Like I said, I hope you're taking care of yourself because you, your voice is going to be needed for a couple more years here in this. And, um, <laughs> oh, you're very kind. I, I have my, yeah, I really have my days. I'll tell you, um, it's, it's hard. It is hard. It's hard to believe, but it's hard. Like I said, I think the hardest thing is the thing when, is that feeling where you're, where you feel like the country doesn't hear you. You know, the most people just can't take it in. These are my good friends who don't take it in. They just can't deal with it. Well, the reality is hard, and people don't – it's hard to look at. It's very hard. You have to force yourself to see it. Um, yeah. It's hard. And and thank God most Americans don't only pay attention to politics. I mean, I wouldn't have a right. basketball game to go to or a book to read if everybody did what right. you, know, you and I do for a living, right? I mean, they, yeah. they, they I'm glad that people do other things, and – and are building our economy and making great art and doing sports and just having a, having full other lives. But the, the, if the sovereigns don't do their job, the sovereigns now being the American citizens, just like a sovereign of, of, of in a dictatorship, if they don't do their job, they're going to get thrown out and replaced by something else. And in a democracy, ooh, yeah. that's a really dangerous thing. Yeah, um, we, we really have to... Um Again, I mean, I, I worry so much about our kind of uh, not just our apathy, but our lack of civic education or erosion of civic knowledge, because I'm, I'm worried that most people um, don't know what a secretary of state does as one and, and, and is not really dialed into what Marchant in Nevada and Mark Kinsman yep. in Arizona, you know, have planned should they win. And, and it'll be too late. Right. So. When was the time yep. to, to try to get Americans to focus on that? And on that note, really quickly, uh, you know, I just wonder, I heard months ago, Dan Bash, CNN reported that Obama was going to do some down ballot campaigning, including Secretary of State. And the hour's a little bit late. I mean, I just, again, I kind of wondered, like, when are we going to sound that alarm? And, and it would take, obviously, Biden or a surrogate like Obama. And um, I don't know that the Democrats have done enough talking about that. I, I, I mean, I, I, I agree with you. I mean, they let the January 6th committee 
do some talking for all of them about threat sort of, uh, you know, writ large. Um, but um, I mean, it's a five alarm fire and everybody should be talking about it. Part of the problem is the immense amount of dark money just flowing in to change a subject all the time. You know, you point it out and they say, wait a minute, did you see that something over there in the corner? I mean, it's, it's, it's very, it's very hard to get people's attention on anything. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like I said, well, I didn't mean to depress you. Obama, Obama's running around on the stump and I just figured, you know, he could be, he could, he could be reading some, you know, some Mark Fincham quotes or tweets or something to try to explain yep. to people that secretaries of state are responsible for the certification of elections. And, uh, that anyway, yeah, well, he's in Michigan and, and there's an issue there. So that's good. He's there right now. And he'll be in Wisconsin, uh, I assume in the next 20 minutes and he'll be doing stuff there. Um, all of that is important, but yeah, the, these secretary of state candidates, but I mean, I guess if we have one, you know, it'll be, uh, something to talk about for the rest of the country, but dangerous, so dangerous. Well, AB, I, um, I like, I always love talking to you. And um, this was going to be the conversation at the end of this cycle that I knew was going to be just, it's out there. It's all right there for everybody if they just want to see it. And we have a great future in this country if people just want to have it um, and not, you know, live in a fantasy world of fake scandal. I mean, there's, I, I think, the future could be bright if we want to make it so. Yeah, I, I think that going back to the first thing that you said at the top of our conversation, I mean, people just really have to engage and they have to participate. They have to learn who the candidates are. They're sending the state legislature, make sure that people that they're, you know, where are these candidates on abortion? Are they, you know, election deniers? Are they, you know, criminal justice abolitionists on the left who are, you know, anti-police? I mean, really on both extremes, people, people have Google and they can do things we didn't do 20 years ago to make sure that, you know, they don't have to fill out a straight party ballot. They can choose wisely and they can split their tickets and they just need to they need to vote and they need to, um, you know, find out if there's any political reforms happening in their state uh, and support those. And, and they need to watch their media diet. And, and those are things and they need to vote in primaries. And those are things that we can do. We are not powerless yep. to make sure that we're doing our part. I'm going to give that the last word. Um, uh, hang in there. Be well. We'll you and I hope we'll talk again right after the primary and we can, or the election, and we can uh, either laugh or cry and then talk about what's coming. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much. Take good care of yourself as well. All right. Good to talk to you. Thank you. All right, everybody. That was AB Stoddard. The um, you know, associate editor, columnist at Real Clear Politics, one of the clearest eyes on the world we're in today. We'll take a break. Um, uh, and, and when we come back, 773-763-9278. I want to hear from you. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendraft on WCPT 820. Okay. Uh, it's your turn at 7... Excuse me. It's seven seven three seven six three nine two seven eight. And let's get going with Jim. Edwin, absolutely the best show you've had so far. 
This should be played all over the country. This this segment you had today. Uh, was it was, good? Yeah, I thought it was good too. It was ter- it was tremendous. It's a, she showed the White House. It's tremendous, and the second guest was terrific. How we're being buried under an avalanche of money. How it's swinging us, uh, killing democracy uh, as best they can with inexhaustible funds. Apparently, they could do something better with the money. Humanitarian things in particular. But anyway, it was a tremendous show today. It was just great, and I just wanted to mention. The 911 operator in the, in the Pelosi case, I think, should be commended. It goes to show how important it is for those 911 operators to listen carefully because it saved his life. And uh, I think that that should be a uh, academic thing in all 911 operations. Anyway, great show and a great guest, and you have a great week and a great Halloween. I'm going to go out. And I think I'm going to go out. I was thinking of pens with a rope around my neck to like trick or treat that much. But I haven't decided. I haven't decided, I haven't decided yet. Anyway, a great show, terrific show. You have a great weekend, Phil. Thank you, Jim. Thank you very much. Okay, we are at 773-763-9278. I'm taking your calls. Paul, what's on your mind today? Hi, Edwin. Um, there you are. There you are, yeah. Um, I think we're being gaslighted by the polls in the last um, month or so, that these polls are tightening so much that the Democrats had such a big lead uh, in the, you know, back in June after the, the Dobbs decision, and now this whole thing about, oh, inflation and crime, and the lead is cut to, uh, I've noticed that they have widened the margin of error in these polls to 4%, actually more than 4%, 4.4%, actually 4.47%, which tells me that what they've done is they cut the sample size to 500 in these polls. You can calculate the sample size, you know, little statistics. Uh, 500 is not enough. And by the way, when you are going to say that a race is tied at 48, 48, um, a, a 44 Margin of error doesn't predict the, doesn't predict the winner. I mean, at forty eight, and there's four percent unaccounted. You you would agree a fifty two forty eight race is a decisive race, is it not? Uh, it's a pretty good margin. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. A four point four margin of error wouldn't even predict that. And I think that the media is in on it. I think the media, of course, the, they want to make this close, sound close. And the other thing for the Republicans is this is just gearing them up for the same kind of, remember election night was, oh, Trump was winning when I went to bed, and now, you see, that must have been a stolen election. So all these Republicans that are saying, yeah, we're close, we're tied now, and we're going to win, and that's all they ever say. You never hear the, the, the Republicans talk like the Democrats. The Democrats are all freaking out, going, oh, my God, maybe we should have talked about inflation more. The Democrats did, and we went through that last week. The Democrats were the ones who, passed the Inflation Reduction Act without a single Republican vote. They're the ones who would pass uh, public safety legislation with more police on the street without a single Republican vote. So I, I don't believe that the debates we keep hearing, I've uh, heard, though, the debates really made a difference. I honestly don't think the debates, I don't think people watch the debates that much unless you're really kind of a stoked in politics and marinate in it. Uh, I think most people, I don't think they'd move anybody, but some, and they certainly don't move polls uh, by this, these large margins. And by the way, when you think about it, when they say uh, there's a 4.5% or 4.4% margin of error, and they say this is tied, well, remember, 4.4 could be the middle 
on the one extreme, it could be tied on the other extreme. It could be almost a 9% difference, you know, 8.94% 8, 8. difference. That's, that's just, I think this is the only poll that counts is on election day. And why I don't believe the polls is because we are seeing, uh, what we're to believe is that the early voting by is number one favors Democrats and it surpassed the 2018 uh, midterm elections, and it's, they're saying even people uh, are surpassed the 2020 uh, election. So I don't believe that with that big of a, uh, you know, with that with that much early voting going on, which does favor Democrats, that, that these races are, you know, neck and neck, uh, you know, tied or within. I don't think they know. I don't think they, or at least not with these polls, they don't. Well, I I don't know. I hope you're right. I think as as A.B. Stodd and I were talking, there's just so much weirdness in this cycle. Um, I like that you call it the black swan election. This uh, uh, you know unusual stuff can still happen. So I'm I'm um, yeah. I, I think it you know who knows right. Um, you're going to deliver me though. What was it? Washington Five? He promised. Uh, oh uh, well, I, I don't know. Um, the thing about that race in Spokane, it's Natasha Hill versus uh, um, um, oh, <laughs> yeah, here. Um, uh, um, the Republican. She used to be she used to be in the top of the leadership there, but she's um, uh, the the media is not covering the race in Spokane, from what I understand. They are they are not they are not. Uh, and uh, Kathy McMorris Rogers, the Republican, Kathy McMorris Rogers has, again, voted with all the Republicans not not to pass anything, not to pass the Inflation Reduction Act. Not she's been with a, a typical lockstep Republican. Um, the the way the primaries and it was top two primary um, in Washington State. So um, she, Kathy McMorris Rogers, got fifty one point something percent, and Natasha Hill was in the 30% range. Then there was a sec, the second tier Republican. And then, um, Anne-Marie Dynamis got about 16%. So yeah. in other words, uh, the Natasha Hill will probably take that other 16%. So that, that puts her at least in the 46, 47. So, I mean, I, I don't know what kind of, you know, again, I don't know if she can pull it out. If, so I don't know is what I don't know is the, is the operable, uh, uh, sentence. So let's let's um, everybody who's listening, because of I don't knows, get to work. We have enough time to make a difference in these I don't know races. Um, yeah, Paul, as I, always. I, what, what do you think? <laughs> let me ask you this question. Before, what do you think is the likelihood that the Repo- Republicans will accept the results of any race they don't win by twenty five points? I, I, you know. Uh, we, yep, they're going to be some. Probably, they're going to be Arizona. Some, yeah, Arizona's going to be in tough. Arizona, they're going to be. They're going to say it was stolen, and as soon as one of them, as soon as one Republican starts saying it's stolen, and in order for the others to prove that they are uh, culpable, the trumpet, uh, they're all going to say, "Oh yeah, and mine was too, and mine was too." Well, it, particularly the Trump candidates for Senate. But I, you know what? I I I hope that that. There are some adult Republicans in the country who will stand up and before the election, like this week, 
Tell people we need a calm election day. Tell people there can be no intimidation and no violence at the polls. And there can be no storming of counting rooms when the votes are counted. Right. And it's on their hands. It's their followers. They have to do this now. Now. And then we'll worry about what they say later. Yeah, they, 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 well, they're the only two adults I, that I've heard are Liz Cheney and, and Adam Kinsinger. And did you hear Liz Cheney endorsed uh, Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan? Which, good. Gretchen Whitmer has done yeah. a fabulous job. She's been a remarkable, remarkable governor. And, and, you know, for the pleasure of serving the great people of Michigan and doing her job and paving the roads, doing exactly what she said she would do, they tried to kill her and kidnap her. You know, I mean, I think gotta that, stop. That it will be right, Paul. I got I got to move. On. I got a lot of okay. line up here. I'm going to move on. Yeah. Thank you, as always. Yeah. Um, I, I'm turning to Ron. Ron, what's on your mind today? Uh, yes, I just want to bring up that uh, in the third, third quarter this year, the gas and oil companies doubled their profits from the previous uh, year in the same time period. So uh, how can anybody blame the Democrats for the high gasoline prices? Yeah, uh, the world is the world for a lot of reasons. The whole world is suffering from inflation. But um, but absolutely, you are completely right that that uh, corporate profiteering um, now, right now, is a huge part of the problem. Massive profits by the oil companies, uh, the biggest in their history this year. Um, uh, You know, in in a market where corporate power has rigged things to increase profits uh, all across. I mean, until 1980, as work became more productive, the minimum wage rise um, to keep up with that productivity. Starting around 1980, as workers got more productive, all of the benefits went to the owners. And, um, uh, you know, it's, it's just America deserves better. We deserve we deserve better. And you are right. Um, uh, the corporate profiteering has hurt us. It's hurt us. And even shareholders should know, you know, as they say in Chicago, pigs get fat, but hogs get slaughtered. So cut it out and come back here and help us uh, with the whole country. Thank you very much, Ron. Really appreciate it. Um, uh, 773-763-9278. I am looking for your thoughts here on this beautiful afternoon. Roosevelt. What's on your mind? Double E, thank you for taking my call. You bet. First of all, first of all, have a nice weekend, my friend. Have a good, great uh, Halloween. And thank you. Uh, you yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know what? Does it really surprise us that the guy that tried to kill uh, Paul Pelosi was a conspiracy conspiracy uh, theorist? Uh, Q. Whatever. Let's say it right. He tried to kill Nancy Pelosi. She wasn't home, and and she attacked her husband. It was an assassination attempt on the Speaker of the House of the United States, the number three in line in case, you know, to the presidency, and completely unacceptable. And, And to your point, this is the second attempt. Notice that. Nobody mentioned that. Yeah, it is. January 6th was an attempt. Right. 
So here's what I'm getting at. Here's what here's what I'm getting at. I totally agree that it's it's uh, that the uh, Republican Party is complicit, has been complicit. But here's the thing that you haven't mentioned. This thing started a long time ago. It started with Rush Limbaugh, in my opinion. It started with the way they delivered their words on their shows, and it went on. These are the people I blame. That's where it was. That's the root of all of this, in my opinion, because here's what's been happening. The Republican Party has taken ideas from Fox News, Rush Limbaugh, um, Mark Levin, Michael Savage, all these guys. Have you ever heard any of their shows? I have. And the things that they've said on their show, on their shows, were the ones that planted the seed in the Republican Party, that the Republican Party slowly became the party of no feelings, no, no feelings, no compassion, no nothing. Notice what uh, Ms. Pelosi uh, did during the insurrection. We heard her on the phone. She was worried about all of Congress there being threatened by, by those insurrectionists. So she protected yeah. all, all of Congress, not just the Democrats. So my point is... She was is, worried about the vice president, not, you know, as well. She was on the phone the with the vice president. Pre- exactly. Pence, yeah. because, telling, because, telling him, don't tell anybody where you are. Yep. Smart. She's so, smart. Yeah, she's smart. So double E, the point I'm trying to make is that we only have one party the party of compassion, feeling, and religion. Because here's the thing, uh, Ms. Pelosi is a a very devoted Catholic, and she believes in, uh, you know, looking at people as people, not not what party or how much did you vote for me or against me and all of that. But my point, another point I'm trying to make is that all these people are complicit and are to blame for all this, including including Sarah Palin. Remember the crosshairs on the senators that voted against the issues that she didn't agree with? So, and remember what happened in Arizona. You know, all of this has been coming. And also a Republican that got shot uh, at, a, at a softball or a, a baseball game Steve or whatever. So, yeah. Yeah. And here's the thing, and I hate, I hate the fact, and I hope I'm wrong, and I'll call you back if I am wrong, but on the election day, there's going to be a lot of, in my opinion, in my opinion, there's going to be a lot of cases. The question is, is anybody going to do their job to prevent this? Is anybody going to go to the polls where there's going to be people? And you know there's going to be people packing, packing firearms. You know there's going to be a lot of intimidation. But look what we, what we become. We become a banana republic, in my opinion, so far. Because people are getting away with it and nobody pays for it, including that orange creature that I hate this guy. And I'm sorry, hate is a a harsh word, but it's a fact. I hate what he did to this country and what he did to our future of this country, meaning our youth, our kids, our grandkids. I just want to correct it or or push back a little. Go ahead. Um, ahead. Justice works slowly. It does. It works slowly. And lots of the people who broke into the Capitol, who attacked the police, are spending time in jail, and they're working their way up. They're being forced to testify. They're going to get them. They're going to be held accountable. Accountability is a real thing. We're going to get them. 
we're gonna get them. Yeah, but but here's the thing: the head of the snake is still is still moving. The head yeah, of the snake he, is he's still moving, moving, but the trap is tightening around him. Reality is reality. He's gonna pay for his crimes. I have confidence that uh, that uh, you won't. It, you'll well, obviously here, not before an election, but yeah. But don't me. I'm gonna close it with this. Here's gonna be the test. The test is gonna be what the. Uh, uh, on the election day, what the results are going to be. That's going to be our test for this. This is going to be a big test for this big country test. and how, big how, test. yeah, how they're going to act and react because they learn bad habits are easier to learn than good habits. And these guys learn the bad habits of Trump. He doesn't have any good habits. Well, come to think of it. Yep. But the yep. point I'm yep. trying to make is that these guys became a tentacle of Trump, in my opinion. And I'm talking about all of the Republican Party. With the- All right, Roosevelt. I I appreciate it. Um, and I and thank you. Me yep. All right. We have we have uh, six minutes left, and I think there are three people on the line. So let's see how we do here. Brian. Hello, Edwin. I hope you're doing well, and I hope you have a happy Halloween. Um, I just wanted to say that, in my view, uh, the midterms are going to determine whether or not we're going to keep a democratic republic or have some form of fascist police state. And the television people, don't bank on them. Bank on WCPT for the truth. And they're pushing the abortion issue to the background. And a brief quote from Betty Friedan, what right has any man to say to any woman, you must bear this child? What right has any state to say it? The childbearing decision is a woman's right and not a technical question needing the sanction of the state, nor should the state control access to birth control devices. And that's uh, what I have to say, and thank you so much for taking my call, Edwin. You're very welcome. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. Um, And I'm going to, I agree with you completely, and I'm going to move to George. George. Hi, Edwin. Um, This was kind of touched on by Senator Whitehouse and also your dialogue with an earlier caller, but um, just for the sake of argument, take the 500 largest corporations in the United States. They're technically American because, for the most part, they're headquartered here, at least formally. But they're all transnational, international, multinational, global corporations. A lot of their money comes in from outside the country and is therefore influenced by foreign considerations. Um, Does anybody have any idea how much of the corporate money that is in our politics is actually foreign money? And if the Democrats manage to hang on to the House and the Senate... What should they be doing about it next year to get this scourge off our backs? Okay, really good, que- really good year. question. Thanks. It's a, re- it's a really good question. Thank you for asking that. Um, I-, I love that American firms compete around the world and that we export products everywhere. But foreign money has no place in our politics. And corporate money ha- needs a much smaller place in our politics. Uh, Senator Whitehouse talked about this. We need to get uh, the Citizens United monkey off our back, and we certainly need disclosure. Um, I, I, a better Supreme Court, a legitimate Supreme Court, would take care of some of this for us. But um, it, Congress has to pass, you know, the kind of laws that they couldn't pass because of the filibuster this cycle. So that that's what we have to do. Um, Tom, I think you're going to get the last word. Oh, hey, Edwin, I'll try to make this real quick. Uh, the Arizona poll watchers, and air quotes, 
they're taking pictures of uh, license plates. Well, why don't uh, the uh, Democrats or uh, people take pictures of their license plates and watch them to make sure they don't get out of hand? So they might be intimidated enough to back away of their fruitless little uh, game that they're playing. It's a really interesting question. I read one report um, this morning, or maybe it was yesterday, that said that they were actually obscuring their license plate with a cardboard that went down behind it so that people couldn't see it. Um, so you can expect bullies everywhere to be cowards and want to hide. So it's harder to do. But they're on TV. We see their faces as much, you know, um, and um, uh, there are now uh, FBI investigations on voter intimidation. Look, Merrick Garland and the Justice Department, they're all working overtime um, on these all over the country. But it's going to be up to citizens. We're going to have to be brave enough not to be intimidated by bullies and thugs. We're going to have to say to our Republican friends, for gosh sakes, tell everyone to stand down so that we can have an election that's free of intimidation and that we can count the votes and not have violence, intimidation, and chaos. Um, I don't expect them to do it, but I'm holding them accountable for it. I expect them to say that, and I expect them to quickly address any issues that where people in their name are doing things that are uh, stopping our citizens from voting. God bless you, uh, Edwin. Thank you. You too. Have a great Halloween. Um, uh, all right, everybody. This was a, a whirlwind of a show. Um, I hope you enjoyed hearing uh, Senator Whitehouse. He's done great work. Uh, I thought uh, today, Claire from Check My Ads, please go and sign up and be part of stopping the funding of Fox dot coms lies and you can do it go to checkmyads.org very very important and of course uh I, I was glad to be able to talk about arizona because so much is on the line there that is familiar to what's going on in the rest of the country um i was glad to talk to ab stoddard get her perspective here at the end and barack is now stumping in wisconsin hopefully we will be able to have mandela barnes in the senate and Ron Johnson in retirement. Um, That is something to cheer about. Have a great week. I will talk to you next week.